On episode 29 of the pod, we go through the news of the week, talk about Bidenomics and the impeachment trial, bring on a special guest to remind us that politics can be both funny and stupid, and continue our conversation from last week about hookers and blow. You're listening to the fastest growing moderate political podcast in the nation. This is Down the Middle, a political podcast. Okay, welcome back to the pod. We've been doing this weekly for a string of them now. No breaks. We have, we have been. And this is episode 29, Feeling Fine. How are you feeling this week, Justin? I'm doing well, Rob. Thank you. Episode 29, Feeling Fine. Yes. It's actually called How to Destroy the Nuclear Family, which is (laughs) way more dark than Feeling (laughs) Fine. Let's go with Feeling Fine. That's good. Seriously depressing. Yes, for sure. Yeah. The ep- it's funny because um, I was telling my wife the ep- that we're on episode 29 and I, I don't know, I can't say the number 29 without feeling fine. And she was like, is that the name of the episode? I was like, no, no, no. Where'd, yeah. where'd you get that from? The 1940s? Yeah, I mean- probably, you know, who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Anyway, we have a lot to get to, don't we? Oh boy. Here we go. I'm going to knock them all out very, very quickly. Let's kick it with Honest Abe's Housekeeping Hangouts. When he growed up, this tiny babe, folks all called him Honest Abe. Abraham, Abraham. Okay, folks. Um, welcome to Honest Abraham's. Uh, we wanted to uh, remind you guys, because it's been a while now, that we do indeed still have a Discord account. Now, That's you true. can always email us questions or concerns or request a topic that you'd like us to cover. But the Discord is kind of cool because you can do it completely anonymous, anonymously. And yeah. uh, that seems to be something that some people are interested in. So uh, you can find a link to our Discord account by going to our Instagram account and clicking the link in the bio. That will take you to our link tree, right, Justin? That's right, link.tree. Right, our link tree basically shows you everything we've ever done, and you can click on all the links and get to anywhere. It's, it's like home base, right? It's a tree so, of links. It's a tree of links, right? So from there, you will see a link to our Discord. You have to register, but you can register under any username you wish. So yeah. it's a cool way to ask questions or send requests to us without revealing your identity. Go check it out. Go do it. Send us some questions. Send us some requests. If you want us to cover anything, I mean, you want the Revolutionary War, we'll do it for you. You want us to cover Stone Temple Pilots, we'll yeah. do it. <laughs> right. We will do it all. So anyway, moving on. Uh, speaking of Instagram, uh, again, we are really upping our Instagram game, and we are uh, trying to give you guys some extra content throughout the entire week via our yeah. storyboard. Uh, exactly. So, yeah, myself, Justin, and editor-in-chief Clay Cogman uh, have what I am coining storyboard debates. And we're nice. perhaps, yes, we're perhaps a little more incendiary on our Instagram than we are on the podcast. But so it's entertaining. I know, it's for the it kids, is. you know? I, I was just going to say, I know a lot of you guys are finding it entertaining. So, uh We're going to try to continue throughout the week bringing you topics that we can't talk about on the show, usually because of time constraints. So, you know, our shows are already coming in at the two hour mark. So this is this is a good way for us to continue the conversation for you all and for you guys to get a good sense of the various positions that exist within each political issue that we bring up. So Mm -hmm. go over to Instagram and follow at down the middle podcast to join in the fun So as I said, all of our debates happen via our storyboard. So you have to click on the stories on the top of your Instagram app. If you don't know how to do that, call your mom. Maybe she does. 
That would be embarrassing for you. Yes, it would be. Uh, next, our long-fabled online publication, The Intermediary, is launching very, very soon. We have some fantastic pieces that we're finalizing and that will go up on the site when we officially launch on day one. The Intermediary is committed to providing only fair and balanced content with a fearless devotion to intelligent, fact-checked discourse that enlightens, educates, and empowers our audience by encouraging an open-minded, respect and tolerance approach to everything we do, we believe that we can bridge the gap between people with opposing beliefs. So we will keep you guys posted on all the happenings as they occur. Well said. Yeah, so I'm not sure if you've been paying attention to a new app on the scene called Clubhouse. It's currently in a closed beta, so not everyone has access. But when it eventually opens up, we think it'll be huge. Anyway, I kind of fell into hosting and co-monitoring a room in there with a gal. Do we use gal in 2021? You can do that, right? That's fine. Uh, yeah. right. okay. I won't cancel Again, you. I appreciate it. <laughs> All right, a gal named uh, Chris Ruby, a very credentialed media pundit and marketer. Uh, it was really interesting. We started a room every Saturday hosted by our club, the Republicans and Conservatives Club. Sounds like a club where you get a cigar on your way in. I, I got to tell uh, you, on a Saturday night, it sounds like a real hoot. Justin. It's, it's a I ripping mean, good time. <laughs> How far uh, we've come. Right, it's a pandemic, yes. man. You do what yeah. you got to do. So we actually had some great dialogue about social media, Section 230, two Saturdays ago, and really interesting, very civil discourse about cancel culture last week. I'm looking forward to more. But what's more notable about this is that the Trump contingent just started joining Clubhouse. Rob and I popped into their room last night, and boy, was it terrible from start to finish. It was just repulsive. Uh, I don't know if you had any thoughts on that, but... Uh, I I won't, you know, you know, it's not even worth it. It was just stupid. Yeah, just just take our words for it. It was really dumb. Uh, Exactly. With all that said, we are going to mess around with the idea of a down-the-middle club or perhaps a weekly room so we can maybe do some live podcasting, get into some civil discourse with you guys. So look for that announcement to come in the future. I think it'll be fun. Yes. Maybe we won't take up your Saturday night, though. No, we'll we'll do a weeknight, maybe. (laughs) Right. We assume that our audience has more lives than we do, even during a pandemic, but who knows? Yeah. Finally, uh, we always said that we would use Honest Abe's housekeeping hangouts to correct the record if there's something that we got wrong, uh, but we can also use it to follow up on a topic that one of us said we'd come back to. So uh, Justin last week brought up the topic of Nancy Pelosi and Tesla stock. I did a little bit of digging and found the following. So uh, the Associated Press did a little fact checking over this last week. So the claim going around the Internet was that on January 24th, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi purchased $1.25 million in stock from the electric vehicle company Tesla. A day later, on January 25th, President Joe Biden signed an executive order requiring all federal vehicles to be electric. If you are on the Internet and you're reading memes, that kind of sounds like in like insider trading. Right. But the AP found this claim to be mostly false. It's up on their website. They have they have rated it as mostly false. Here are the actual facts. I just want to get the facts out. All right. Good. Okay. And I think that this is a good example of how a little detail can be slightly twisted a little here and there to form a narrative that maybe appeals more to a certain group of people. Right. Mm -hmm. So according to the AP, a viral meme wrongly accusing Pelosi of investing millions in Tesla the day before Biden signed an executive order on electric vehicles circulated widely on Facebook on Monday. I think this was two Mondays ago uh, with millions of views and more than two hundred and seventy five thousand shares. Okay, that's a lot. Not shares of stock, people sharing them. 
Uh, (laughs) It is true that Pelosi's husband, Paul Pelosi, made a Tesla investment recently, according to the House Speaker's financial disclosure documents that were published on January 21st. However, the date and amount of the investment don't match the claims that's circulating widely online. So according to Pelosi's latest periodic transaction report filed with Congress, her husband, on December 22nd, invested between uh, 500K and 1 million in 25 call options for Tesla stock at a strike price of $500 until March 2022. Now, call options are, and I didn't know this, they're financial contracts that give the buyer the right to buy shares of stock for a certain amount, the strike price, right. until mm-hmm. a set expiration date. Uh, yeah, again, so if this, it goes up, you can still buy the options at the price that you... Right. This is not my set. forte. I'm not, a, I'm not a big trader. So I, I learned something there, right? Now, yeah. Bi- Biden signed his executive order uh, directing federal officials to, to transition federal, state, local, and even tribal government fleets to clean and zero emission vehicles on January 27th, which was more than a month after Pelosi's husband made the investment. Now, Mm -hmm. members of of the House are allowed to buy and sell stocks, but are prohibited from using private information from their jobs to inform their investments. That's insider training, okay? And that is according to the Stock Act of uh, of 2012. Though Mm -hmm. Pelosi's husband's investment was legal, it had, and this is what Justin was bringing up last week. It has drawn scrutiny from critics who argue that members of Congress should not be allowed to trade individual stocks at all. Right. So, mm-hmm. what I'll say, what I'll say about this first, the idea that that anything illegal was done here is not true. And again, I Absolutely. don't think that's what Justin was was inferring. Right. But I do think maybe. Justin, were you reacting a little to the pre-fact-checked information before you fact-checked it? Well, like when you saw this story, was that no, no? Fir- so this, okay, so it, I it saw had already been fact-checked when you saw I had this. Done right? the, yeah, I looked okay. at the fact-checked information. I saw yeah. that they were call options, and I saw that he had done them right. a month prior to this. A month before, none, okay. none of so that. Got the none of that bugged version. me. Yeah, exactly right. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay, so regardless of that, I think what you did want from me was my opinion on whether members of Congress should be able to engage in this kind of thing at all, and if they should be allowed to trade individual stocks. Yeah, to give to give you context before that is when my dad was an ambassador, he had to, his business venture stopped, right? right? He had to put everything on hold for the reason that he is working for America, he's working mm -hmm. in a foreign government, and they don't want him to even have the temptation of using that to his advantage. Yeah, uh, okay. So, you know, it, to me, it's sort of the apples and apples. Right. Well, I, I, could see, I could see where you're coming from with that. What I would say, and this isn't, <laughs> this isn't a left-wing position in any yeah. way, shape, or form, my, my opinion, on, the way I personally feel on it, is that as long as, they, as long as people in Congress have to play by the same rules as the rest of us, I don't have a problem with it. Like, capitalism for all. I don't demonize anyone who's trying to make extra money. I think anyone making more money is good for all of us. That's just how I look at economics in general. So why should they be excluded from making trades unless they have specific information that the rest of the public isn't privy to. And Mm -hmm. if you're thinking that Nancy Pelosi, and I'm not saying you, Jay, but I'm saying the public, thinking that Nancy's husband had that information, you're assuming something nefarious that, quite frankly, just isn't there. So let's say say Paul Pelosi is just a smart investor, like anyone, Mm -hmm. okay? Look, Tesla's a smart investment, period. Right, right. But 
But on top of that, one of Biden's main campaign promises was a focus on transitioning to zero emission vehicles. Mm -hmm. So upon Biden being elected, a lot of investors started dumping money into green energy companies because they're assuming this is going to be an important agenda item for the Biden Mm -hmm. administration. So I don't see why members of Congress should be excluded from investing in policies that they happen to support. Pelosi didn't get insider information about Tesla. Presumably, he got the same information that the rest of us got, which is that the Biden administration was going to make green vehicles a priority for the administration. So I have no problem with this. I mean, that, that's that's just basically how I feel. I, I Again, I don't think it's wrong for anyone to be a smart investor, whether they're working in Congress on behalf of the people or not. It just doesn't mm-hmm. bother me. Now, as an aside, I looked into this further, and both AOC and Bernie Sanders have indeed supported or introduced legislation that would make it impossible for members of mm-hmm. Congress to trade at all. And as we touched upon last week with the whole Robin Hood GameStop thing, the reason the so-called socialist wing of the party is against this is because they just don't like money. They don't like money. Yeah. <laughs> right. Bernie Sanders thinks money is evil. I mean, they fundamentally think that money is a bad thing, even though mm-hmm. it did indeed buy all three of Bernie's houses. So, uh, you know, they resent the fact that anyone can trade in the market. So the point is this. If you're on the right and if you're a fiscal conservative, don't be like Bernie Sanders. That's that's basically <laughs> where I'll leave it. Yeah, no, look, I completely understand that. And, and in a perfect universe, sure, anyone could do uh, you know anything they want and trade freely on the stock market. Right. I just feel a little icky mm-hmm. about the idea of these corporations that have to abide by a certain set of laws, and the lawmakers are the ones who are now benefiting right. from that. The ones mm-hmm. that make the laws. So it just like it just it just struck me left and i just was wondering what your viewpoint was on it yeah first of all it wasn't pelosi it was her husband who's not in government yeah um whether or not that matters but also you know maybe there has to be tighter restrictions on yeah figuring out if some of these people in congress have information to me it's all about does the public have information that have all the information that they have Mm -hmm. and as long as as long as you can say that then I have absolutely no problem with people making money in the market, whether they're public officials or not. It just doesn't bother me. It's just hard to be able to tell what information yeah. someone has and doesn't have and what they yeah, act on and what I agree. they don't have. It's almost impossible. I agree. So that's Maybe we uh, need to do a deeper dive into this eventually. Put yeah, it on the list. Yeah. Put it on the <laughs> list. Uh, we didn't get any questions this week for uh, We Care A Lot, so uh, we're going to skip it entirely and go right into the news of the week. This is Turn On The News. <laughs> Okay, so uh, crazy cat lady Marjorie Taylor Greene was uh, officially pulled from her committee assignments by the Democrats this week. Justin, uh, tell us what you know about it. So this past Thursday, the House voted to remove Republican Representative MTG, as she's now known as. She guess she coined that herself uh, from her committee assignments on the House Education and Labor Committee and Budget Committee in the wake of her continued conspiratorial comments and statements including the one about the Jewish space laser we briefly discussed last week. The vote tally was 230 to 199, with 11 Republican House members voting along with Democrats, including our hero Adam Kinzinger of Illinois, Mario Diaz-Balart of Florida, Maria Salazar of Florida, and the Chrises, as I like to refer to them, Smith and Jacobs from New Jersey and New York, respectively. Just kidding. I had really never said their names before in my life. (laughs) The Democrats have justified this move, connecting MTG's comments with the Trump insurrection in this statement from House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Quote, 
If any of our members threatened the safety of other members, we'd be the first ones to take them off of a committee. However, even CNN sensed some danger in this move, despite how zany or dangerous MTG's comments could be considered. And I'm quoting here. The move could set a risky precedent as Democrats target a sitting member of the opposing party in Congress over views expressed prior to her serving as an elected official, one that has the potential to someday be used against the party by the Republicans. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy expressed both of these views in statements last week, first saying, Past comments from and endorsed by MTG on school shootings, political violence, and anti-Semitic conspiracy theories do not represent the values or beliefs of the House Republican Conference. I condemn those comments unequivocally. I condemned them in the past. I continue to condemn them today. This House condemned QAnon last Congress and continues to do so today. At the same time, he went on to accuse the Democrats of, quote, choosing to raise the temperature by taking the unprecedented step to further their partisan power grab regarding the committee assignments of the other party. Okay, yeah, that's a pretty thorough review of, of, of how it went down. Now, Yeah, good old Kev. Yes. <laughs> of course, Marjorie Taylor Greene made a speech in Congress where she blamed the media and cancel culture for all of this, as you would expect. Uh, I want to break this down in a minute, but uh, here's what that sounded like first. You see, big media companies can take teeny tiny pieces of words that I've said, that you have said, any of us, and cor- can portray us into someone that we're not. And that is wrong. Cancel culture is a real thing. It is very real. Okay, so first off, uh, this wasn't a case of media manipulation or taking her out of context. Uh, We have the full audio and in some cases video of her saying these things in a clear and calm tone of voice with all the context surrounding it. So she doesn't get to make that that kind of excuse. It's so, just, so what it, you're saying silly. is someone didn't take the three words Jewish space and laser and <laughs> right. throw them together? It really sounds no, that way to me. That didn't okay. happen. But we also yeah. have her chasing Parkland kids down the street telling them it was, yeah. I mean, I mean, it's just, it's, it's yeah, all over it's the nuts. place. But more importantly, and uh, more dangerously, in my opinion, is that we're seeing from the more radical members of the GOP, this intentional conflation of cancel culture and freedom of speech. In other words, as I've said before, I am an ardent supporter of the the First Amendment, as you should be as well, as we all should be as Americans, Mm -hmm. right? And I'll talk about this a little more in my Culture Corner segment later in the show. Freedom of speech is an important element of comedy. So I I very much value freedom of speech for lots of reasons, right? But I support Marjorie Taylor Greene's right to say anything she wants. And I think Justin has said the same kind of thing that like mm-hmm. she'll, he'll fight to the death for someone to have that right to believe whatever the hell they want, even Nazis, right? Yeah, of course. As long as she's not specifically calling for violence. That's yes. that's like where you draw the line. That's 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 where it's not, no longer freedom of speech. Exactly. But that doesn't mean that the things you say don't have consequences in the real world. Like mm-hmm. you can tell your boss that he's fat and useless. Like you could go into your boss's office and say, you are fat and useless and you have the freedom to do that. But then don't act surprised when you get fired and don't be surprised when nobody takes you seriously. When you then try to claim that that was a violation of your first amendment rights, right? Like it's silly. So right. Mm -hmm. A a lot, a lot of the arguments I've heard about this on the right are suggesting that this is a form of cancel culture because Democrats don't agree with her. Like, no, 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 no. Okay. Cancel culture is somebody making a joke on Facebook seven years ago and then losing their job today because of it. Right. Cancel culture does not mean that if you believe in disproven anti-Semitic 
uh, and downright insane conspiracy theories, you should be protected from any like real world consequences of that, right? You are a sitting member of Congress and that comes with a certain amount of responsibility. So this is a new argument that we're starting to see and it's a blurring of the line between freedom of speech and being a sane and or a good person. And you're gonna see, my prediction, more people get shut out from all different aspects of society because they hold abhorrent or ridiculous, you know, viewpoints on things. And the right will be will respond to this by calling that cancel culture. That that I, I think you're going to see a lot more of that. So the headline from New York Times, just to give an example, will be Google fires employee because they believe in QAnon. And then the headline from the Washington Examiner is going to be Google cancels conservative employee. You know, that this is what we have to watch out for. And we're seeing a lot more of this coming from conservative America and Christian America in particular, whereby they will claim broad based discrimination in the workplace, uh, by private businesses or even, you know, at their local supermarket. And they'll make the claim that it's because they're conservative. And then it becomes an argument over what falls under the rubric of conservatism anymore, Mm -hmm. because if you're a Christian who believes in free market economics and limited government, I want to see evidence of discrimination against you. Because I'd find it extremely hard to believe that a company like Google, for instance, would fire you because you think capitalism is good. But if you insist on wearing your MAGA hat at your corporate job, and your company doesn't like that because it's associated with a man whose rhetoric is considered toxic to that corporation, then I don't see that as discrimination if you get fired. Every company has a right to, to especially private companies, have a right to make rules. You have to abide by the rules of that company. And so you can't claim discrimination if they don't like what you're promoting or it doesn't it's not in line with the values of of their business right and unfortunately the right is including wearing a maga hat at your corporate job as an element of what it means to be conservative and in fact conservatism is becoming more and more disassociated with limited government and capitalism and free markets and religious morality and personal responsibility and fiscal responsibility and pro-business, all the stuff we've talked about on the show. And it is becoming, unfortunately, more associated with fringe conspiracies and some hateful and very abhorrent Mm -hmm. rhetoric. So the point is this. The point is that we have to draw a distinction here between people who are getting canceled simply because they worship Christ, which is it, it would not only be wrong, but it's illegal. And people who are getting canceled because they believe the Democrats run a pedophile ring and they believe it so fervently that they advertise it on their T-shirts, right? The Republicans have to make an effort to redefine. I know Jay will, Justin will will agree with me on this. They have to redefine what it means to be conservative. Mm -hmm. And they have to write in bold print that Clinton kill lists is not one of those things. QAnon is not one of those things. Deep state conspiracies are not one of those things. Justin, I mean, how do you feel about that? Yeah, look, I I hear you on what you're saying. I think part of this problem and why we are hearing that there are some stories, uh, anecdotal as they might be, about uh, people being discriminated against is because there is a large swath of people who are, whether they're liberals or progressives or just not even interested in politics, they are conjoining conservatism and MAGA. And so when you say to someone, I'm a conservative, they automatically now assume that you believe in QAnon. They'll go all the way there. 
and they'll treat you like you do, whether you are actually a Trump supporter or you're someone like me. So that is part of the problem. I do think that the the branding within the GOP is it, the whole GOP right now is a mess. It's completely and I was divided. Gonna bring, I was going to bring that up later because we have to go to the polling data to actually see exactly what, the, right. what the Republican base is thinking. And it's mm-hmm. unfortunate. The people who get hurt in this thing are you or people like you. Uh, yeah. Because, yeah. again, just by by saying you're a conservative, you do get lumped in a lot of times. Mm-hmm. But what I'm saying is that, like, from a corporation standpoint, you're, you're seeing a lot of conflation of, oh, my job discriminated against me because I did X. And then we find out that X wasn't something innocuous like going to church on Sunday or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, thinking limited government is a better solution for, for our country. We find out that X is... I'm going to, you know, wear a gun in, in, uh, you know, I'm, I'm such a sa- ardent supporter of the second amendment. I'm going to bring my gun to work or I'm going to wear my MAGA hat everywhere Honestly, I go. It, it, yeah. It's mostly Trump oriented. No, right. I mean, that's, right. that's the problem these days. Right. My issue is that the conflation of now Trump and violence is also one to one. Yeah. And so, you know, whether or not, you know, Joe Schmo at Google is going to wear his mag, who, who wears his MAGA hat is then going to go off and, and, and storm the Capitol is questionable. Right. You know, right. you don't know that he's a violent individual just because he's wearing a MAGA hat. And yet they are conflating that with violence. And therefore, that is the reason it doesn't fit with their values. Yeah, so I, I think I think MAGA hats tricky. at this point, it is tricky. And MAGA hats at this point are associated with a certain kind of viewpoint that yeah. I think a lot of people and a lot of uh, companies, a lot of corporations just find to be a viewpoint they don't want to be associated with. Yeah, and right. that is their right. That is mm-hmm. their but I just don't classify that as discrimination. If your job tells you you can't wear a MAGA hat, right? Because you could still hold all those values you want. Just don't advertise it. Don't advertise it on your person, right? Well here's the thing. It's like and getting back to MTG a little bit. Mm-hmm. So the difference I would make in the distinction rather I would make between what she's done and some other people that 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 we can talk about is that she actually did publicly renounce these things she said in the past. Now, this becomes a question of, are we willing to forgive people of their past mistakes if they're willing to admit they were wrong and attempt to move on? I'm guessing we could find plenty of other things about congresspeople's past that would warrant possible removal in the same fashion from committees. Mm -hmm. And look, I don't personally believe her. And the things she said in the same speech she renounced her past statements in made me terrified for her to sit in Congress. But it walks the line. Because maybe, look... You know, it maybe it's because she should have renounced all these things when she got elected and okay. not when she got called to get kicked off her committees, you know, and maybe yeah. this is a consequence that she didn't say, look, I'm a serious government government official. These these conspiracy theories have no uh, place here. And I don't know that anything would have been different, but I would have felt way stronger about her getting kicked off these committees had she come into Congress and said, I renounce these things. But then I think about Ilhan Omar, or Rashida Tlaib. Right. And there's right. No, there's nothing to do with partisanship here. Like, why have they kept their committee assignments? They've said some terrible anti-Semitic comments. So, without renouncing them. Again, I've said on this show very, very plainly that I think both those people are anti-Semitic for sure. But I don't think um, they have blatantly... promoted full-on conspiracy theories that the bo- that that are very pervasive on that side of the aisle like the way uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene has. Yeah, but but, the way, but that's personal responsibility. Yeah, no, I understand you know? that. And that and that actually is a good segue into the, one of the other things I wanted to say here which was mm-hmm. that uh, Republicans are claiming that the whole thing, like I think you mentioned this, uh, the, this whole thing is, uh, of Democrats stripping her of her committee assignments will backfire on them. And yeah. that it, because it could, it sets a bad precedent because now we're going to go through every, you know, everything anyone 
in sure. your caucus said before they right. were elected, right? And my response to that, honestly, yeah. Congress is, good. is high school. Yeah, uh, I mean, here, here's the thing. You mean the people actually running the country and making the laws should be held accountable for the type of people they were before they were in public office? What a concept. Like, I'll tell you this, okay? If you find a a tape of a junior congressperson on the Democratic side who claimed that Christian space lasers are brainwashing us to believe in Christ, strip that person of their committee assignment as well. You will not hear me bitching about it. So that that's how I stand on the, that. Let me let me ask you this question: Does it change for you if, when they enter Congress, they say, "Hey, there's this video of me. I said I, would, I was acting stupid. I said stupid things. I do not believe them currently." Does that change your opinion of whether they should get stripped of their committee assignments or not? I, I don't really know because I don't have a, a specific example to draw from. What I what I will say about that is that Barack Obama, who was a very smart politician, uh, he wrote a book called um, "Dreams from My Father" before he was elected, where he it was, it was a big part of this book was sort of his his confession of everything mm-hmm. he's done wrong in his life. And, and it included uh, when he was doing drugs and a, a bunch of other things. He got it all out there before he became a politician on the national stage. I, yeah. I do think that's the thing to do if you want to be a politician. Let's hear every single crazy thing you've ever thought, everything mm-hmm. you broadcast on the Internet, everything that you did in your childhood that's going to come back to haunt you. So we don't have to find out about it later. Unfortunately, we're going to end up having more politicians like Donald Trump who did all of those things, but don't care. They don't care what people think. And that's where I think we're trying to avoid in our politics going forward is the shamelessness. We don't want to have politicians that are so shameless that they don't care about any of the bad things they've said or done. Mm -hmm. But we also don't want to have necessarily politicians who are so clean that they've never experienced life. I mean, we all, we all were, were teenagers. We also need to leave room for redemption and, and forgiveness. Of course. If, if the situation calls for it. So, you know, I think balancing these things is important. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. So lastly on this, Megan McCain, trended uh this week she's of course the late john mccain's daughter uh she trended when she blamed this whole thing this whole marjorie taylor green thing you guessed it on the mainstream media this is what that sounded like the more that the mainstream media um continues to come out and say that all republicans are birthers and crazy people and we believe in space lasers then the more it makes uh traditional republicans and there's still a lot of them in the country uh go back into their corners and this is becoming very tribal and i would argue that this is how we got trump in the first place now i know justin you said sort of a similar thing a couple yeah, minutes I don't ago think she's entirely but, wrong okay but basically <sighs> The problem I have with it is that, you know, it, it's sort of like if you guys would stop calling us crazy conspiracy theorists, we'd stop intentionally putting crazy conspiracy theorists in office, which is what we do. Right. Well, yeah, so, I wouldn't so, connect it that far. But yes, uh, but, I, but I, that's what Donald Trump was. At the end of the day, Donald Trump was a doddering old Fox News conspiracy theory driven. I mean, he made up. The birther, he's 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 the the architect of the birther conspiracy. So, you know, at a certain point, so what Meghan McCain is basically saying there, I find a little ridiculous because she's sort of saying, like, we're just giving you what you want. You know, <laughs> you're calling us all conspiracy theorists. Here's a conspiracy theory. Yeah, that part right. of the quote I, I, I don't love. But I do think that, you know, the media, is, as we've said a trillion times on this show, they're trying to get ratings. They're going to put the microphone in front of the craziest of person in the room. Yes. And that is going to be broadcast across the country. And people who don't have perspectives like we present on this show will buy it and and will then consider most conservatives that they meet that whatever okay. that is. Yes, but what I will say 
is that the reason people are painting republicanism these days with a broad brush is because they did it to themselves when they started embracing these once fringe ideas in order to captivate a mm-hmm. larger audience and win elections. I mean, 64% of the Republican Party thinks the election was a hoax. Yeah. So I'm sorry if my buddy Justin here and traditional Republicans like Meghan McCain, whose father, by the way, has a lower approval rating in the Republican Party than Barack Obama does, which tells you everything you need to know <laughs> about the current Republican Party. Yeah. Right? I, I'm sorry if if people like you are offended by this are offended by how much attention the kooks are getting. But Mm -hmm. go ask the leaders of the party, including Mitch McConnell, why they take so long to denounce the kooks. And I'll give you one answer why. It's because it helps them win. It helps them win. They understood this from, uh, you know, from the Tea Party, honestly. We always sort of use that as the inflection point. Uh Right. But but they understood that, you know, there was that that famous moment in John McCain's campaign when he was running Mm -hmm. against Obama where he's giving that speech, I forget where it was, and some lady stands up and says, I don't trust Obama, he's an Arab. And he takes the mic right out of her hand and he very forcefully, almost like he was talking to a child, was like, no. She's he he is a good Christian family man who I happen to have some disagreements with about policy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he's not. So sit down. He got like really upset about you. It's on YouTube. You guys can go check it out. Right. That was the last moment of integrity for the Republican Party. It honestly was. And when John McCain lost, I think a lot. I know a lot of the thought leaders said that was the biggest mistake he made was doing what he did because we need to embrace that we should have embraced that we well, should have said it wasn't yeah, so he is much it, it wasn't mccain losing it was sarah palin's popularity that really spurred yeah, this sarah, on. Yeah, it was yeah. how popular it's both she, it's both yeah, mm-hmm. for sure and and, mm-hmm. and, and sarah uh, palin came with a lot of those conspiracies she started calling the the mainstream media the lamestream she's, media she's right. the beginning of this it's just the truth we're going to review a movie next week uh, on, in Culture Cor- Corner that deals with a lot of this stuff, and I'm really excited right. to do it because uh, you haven't seen it yet, Rob, but I think right. you're going you're gonna to relate all of this stuff very easily to this film, uh, John Stewart movie, and uh, Excellent. it's going to be interesting to see what you think. Cool. So look forward to that next week. Anyway, it is not all bad news in the world of the GOP. Uh, ben Sass, Republican senator of Nebraska, last week released a video that addressed the fact that uh, he was being censured in Nebraska for not being Trumpy enough, of course. Uh, here is what the highlights of that statement sounded like. As a friend and fellow Republican, I want to shoot straight. I'm not going to spend any time trying to talk you out of another censure. I listen to Nebraskans every day, and very few of them are as angry about life as some of the people on this committee. Personality cults aren't conservative. Conspiracy theories aren't conservative. Lying that an election has been stolen, it's not conservative. Acting like politics is a religion, it isn't conservative. You are welcome to censure me again, but let's be clear about why this is happening. It's because I still believe, as you used to, that politics isn't about the weird worship of one dude. All right. So, uh, Justin, what say you? Well, first of all, his audio was great. Could use a little EQ, but sounding real nice. We usually don't mm-hmm. get the production right on the right. And, uh, right. you know, a little gel on the hair wouldn't hurt either. But yeah. <laughs> what, what can I really say here that Mr. Sass has not? I love this video. Ben Sass for president. This is everything I've ever wanted to say as a conservative about Trump and about the party in general. This echoes what's happening within the party, this divide. 
Trumpism is not conservatism. Amen. Period. Done. Ben Sass, preach on. Right, right. And we will say it to the cows come home. Um, and we were just talking about that, how these conspiracy theories, it has become synonymous with republicanism. And yeah. people like Ben Sass, people like Adam Kinzinger, I think have a very hard road ahead of them. But if they, if they are steadfast in their goal of sort of breaking the Republican Party from this crazy spell they've been under, mm-hmm. probably ever since Sarah Palin, I think you're exactly right, then uh, maybe we stand a chance here to have two functioning parties that are able to work together and not yeah. have you know, waste so much time litigating all this crap. Yeah, I mean, those voices are getting louder, thankfully, and they're yeah. getting younger, too, which is yeah. even better, because a lot of yes, these guys that are either actually causing these problems or are, you know, cementing these problems by supporting them are all very old. Right. And they'll right. be out of office eventually. Yeah, hopefully. Okay, so uh, moving on, outside of the impeachment trial, uh, which we'll get to in a few minutes, the big ongoing news story of the week was Biden's relief package stimulus bill. Uh, which Justin, myself, and Editor-in-Chief Clay Cogman have been feverishly debating on Instagram all week. Uh, my view on this whole thing is simple. Do you, uh, you mind if I just go and, and, and tell you how I feel about this, Justin, and then you can, feel you can free, chime Rob. in when you want? Go okay. for it. So I think I've been pretty consistent about this since before Biden was elected. When I talked about wanting moderation out of Biden, I was referring to the supposed radical plans that right-wing media was going nuts about, like to eliminate the filibuster or statehood for D.C. or packing the Supreme Court. But I have never included a watered-down relief package to deal with the devastation left in the wake of the pandemic as one of those things. So I have said repeatedly on this podcast that the government, both federal and state, drove a truck into our living room and they are responsible for picking up the pieces. And by the way, that was the opinion of even the most conservative pundits throughout most of this pandemic. This was unprecedented. The government did this to us. Shapiro was saying that every single day. They did this to us. They have to fix it, right? So this crisis is inherently different than other financial crises. Uh, and I know this firsthand because my my own wife's business went under due to rules imposed by our government, whether you agree with those rules or not. Like she didn't make any bad business decisions. She didn't overextend herself. She was shut down. Think about this. She was shut down by the government. The government then failed to put forth a solution to rectify the situation between tenants and landlords, which could have been done at, at, at a federal level so mm-hmm. that maybe there was a moratorium on rent or whatever, right? And that eventually led to her business, along with millions of others having to close because they couldn't pay their basic expenses. So the, this isn't rocket science. So it has been my belief from the beginning of this thing that more is more. In terms of relief. And I've been, Justin, you would agree. I've been very consistent on that. I've said, mm-hmm. uh, I am not scared of too much no, relief you here. Said right? That the, in- right. the entire time. Yeah. Right. And I know Justin last week or a couple weeks ago cited supposed, uh, you know, expert opinions on how the economy was going to recover. But frankly, I just don't believe it. That's my personal belief. And I don't believe it because I have eyes and a brain. And, the, you know, just to take an example, the Staples Center here in LA has been closed for nearly a year, okay? Think about the tens of thousands of people who have been displaced because of this, the people who sell tickets, the Mm -hmm. people who work at concession stands, the people who do security, parking, janitorial services, et cetera, right? Then widen that out to virtually every single venue in the country that does events, 
And that's just one sector of the economy. That's just one sector. I think there is a certain amount of artificial confidence right now that is due in part to the fact that people are surviving on unemployment insurance and PPP money and eviction moratoriums. Mm -hmm. But I just don't see how when that all dries up, which it will, things are going to suddenly be fine. I mean, call it a gut feeling I have, but I still contend that we're on the brink of a Great Depression. And it, it's a contention, by the way, that I sincerely hope I'm wrong about because I never root against America, even when Donald Trump was president. I don't root for anything bad to happen. So I, 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 want, I want to be wrong about this. I just don't yeah. think I am, right? So with that said, the Democrats have made a lot of strategical mistakes over the last 12 years or so. And I think one of those big mistakes was assuming that they could sort of coerce the Republicans to act in good faith. And this is something that Justin and I were, were arguing over on, on our Instagram thing this week. Now, we know from the words of Mitch McConnell that his entire being is focused now is focused not on on what's good for the American people, but on the accumulation of power on his side of the aisle. He vowed publicly to never work with Barack Obama in an effort to make him a one-term president. And ultimately, I think the Obama presidency had a lot of positive elements to it, but the fatal flaws occurred in the first two years of Obama's first term, when the Democrats had full control of the government and basically squandered that majority rule in an effort to be bipartisan. So we talk a lot about what led to Trump. We, we, you know, this is a big topic of conversation to this day. How did we get Trump? Honestly, the seeds were sown in the first two years of Obama's presidency when factions of Democratic voters were supremely disappointed in the fact that Obama wasn't pushing through more aggressive agenda items when he had the chance to. And then it was too late after they lost the the House and the Senate, right? Yeah. That ultimately led to a lot of the more progressive members of the base who eventually became Bernie fans thinking about the establishment Democratic Party in the same light that they thought about the GOP. So when Hillary Clinton became the nominee in, uh, you know, for 2016 election, a lot of those people saw her candidacy as just an extension of the failed sort of feckless leadership of Obama's first couple of years. And they were inclined to not give her their vote to teach the Democrat a lesson, the Democrats a lesson. That was a lot of the Bernie contingent in 2016 killed Hillary Clinton because they wanted to teach the Democrats a lesson. Like, yeah, you, there's a million progressive candidates you can mm-hmm. you can put up and you're putting up this old, you know, what they considered a right winger at that time, right? Yeah, sure. So fast forward to today, I think the Democrats see this financial disaster as their last attempt to go very bold and not do the usual caving that they do, especially when the leadership on the other side of the aisle clearly wants them to fail. I mean, so my cynical belief here is that you're seeing the GOP fight for a stripped down relief package because they want the economy to go south under Biden so that they can win it back in a couple of years. They can win the whole thing back. Right. And that's called negotiating in bad faith. And it is just what I think is going on now. Before we get any further, I want to play a clip for you guys to nail this home. This is Dan Pfeiffer who was an Obama staffer. He was in the room. He's one of the Pod Save America guys. And he talks about, in this clip, how the financial crisis of 2008-2009, in that crisis, the Obama administration failed to put forth a big enough stimulus because the scale of the economic damage was downplayed at first by 
the experts. So once it was determined that it was worse than they thought, it was too late at that point to go back to the well. And that led Dan Pfeiffer in this clip to explain why it is so important for Biden to go big this one time. Here it is. As bad as the crisis was, we didn't even realize how bad it was because the first report of the gross domestic product for the last half of 2008 during the crash was that the economy had contracted 6.8%. And that was the, and stimulus is about filling the hole in the economy. We learned after the stimulus was passed, when they revised the numbers, that the number was actually 8.9. So they're off by a pretty large percent. And so all those things combined led us to be in a position where we did not get the stimulus, the amount of stimulus and response we needed in the short term. And then what happened because of that is the our party, which not just we talked about conservative senators, there's also a gigantic coalition of blue, quote unquote blue dog Democrat Democrats in the House who were very fiscally conscious, if you will, and were then we were unable to go back to the well to get more stimulus where we saw we were missing. The most important thing from all of this, and I think Barack Obama would agree with it, you and I would agree with it, the Biden people clearly agree with it, is you get one shot to address this crisis. And everything else that you want to do depends on addressing the crisis right now, which is why they are going big and fast and comprehensive and being aggressive about it. Because if you fail here, you're going to be trying to dig yourself out of this economic and political hole for the rest of your term. And so there was a lot of lessons to learn about 2009. And it is very clear that Joe Biden, who was there and managed the Recovery Act, completely understands that his team, I think, is very wisely approaching this with that experience in mind. So uh, this is what I agree with completely. You get one shot, okay? If Biden screws up this economic recovery by not doing what stimulus is intended to do, which is, as Dan Pfeiffer said there, to fill the hole in the economy, that's his term right there. That is his entire term. The devastating effects of not doing enough will destroy his entire term and anything else he does will not matter because everyone votes with their pocketbook. Every The economy is always paramount. It's always the most important thing, right? He will be remembered as a president who had a chance to save the economy and didn't, or it was an extremely slow recovery. So what I'm saying is that the Republicans know this and they want that, they want that to happen because that's possible. Politics. That's the unfortunate thing about politics. You want your, they, you want the other side to lose. So, Justin, what are your thoughts on this? And then we'll, then we'll, I'm sure we'll have a little discussion about it. Sounds good. So, first of all, I want to make it clear: I'm not advocating here for no relief. Far from mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. I believe that relief must be passed. The people who are suffering, they have to be taken care of. What I'm saying is, we need relief. But if we are listening to the expert economists, what we do not need is stimulus. And that's where I'm drawing the distinction: unlimited, unending spending just can't go on. It needs to be responsible. It needs to be targeted. It needs to be balanced. And it needs to be in consideration with any and all future implications like inflation, which is where I'm very concerned. We shouldn't just carpet bomb America with brand new printed money. So let's not even deal with what current advisors have been saying about this package. Back in the very beginning of January, Stephen Moore, an economic advisor to former President Trump, argued against a massive stimulus bill. He's quoted as saying that the economy's recovery is not dependent on the pandemic legislative relief package. And as he put it, it will recover, quote, without all of this government spending. He went on to say that the $2,000 proposed checks is not a way to stimulate the economy. 
and he warned us that we are passing these costs onto our children and grandchildren. Larry Kudlow, the director of the U.S. National Economic Council and a Republican, who was actually once a Democrat, as far back as August of 2020, stated that a fiscal stimulus deal is also not essential to the U.S. recovery. Now you say, don't listen to the experts in the economy, but listen to them on climate. And where's that distinction made? So the $15 minimum wage hike is a perfect example of what I'm talking about here. And you're going to say the Democrats folded. But in reality, I believe they did the right thing. They dropped a piece of Democrat legislation to prioritize COVID relief and get it passed. That's what they should be doing. Put the legislation through the regular channels that require a supermajority and negotiate for bipartisan support. We know it exists. And put the COVID relief through the simple majority with reconciliation. It's, it's, it's not rocket science, as you said. Right. The Democrats most recently added plans to provide American families with $3,000 per school-age child over the next year. Some are lobbying to make this a permanent shift in spending. It would start, I don't know if you heard about this, it would start as a fully refundable child tax credit for 2021, increasing the amount to $3,000 per child ages 6 to 17, and 3600 annually for children under the age of 6. Now, to put this in perspective, the current child tax credit, you know, when you read all of the, the right-wing press that's going to be screaming about this, it's important to know the information. The current child tax credit provides $2,000 per child for 2020. It's income-based, so those making over $200,000 we'll see the amount of their credit phased out. Now, in a bipartisan move, Senator Mitt Romney put forth a proposal that saw the permanent increase of $3,000 a year per child for school-aged children and $4,200 per per child under six. Now, the difference here is that Romney's proposal is acquiring the funding from sources already in circulation. And what it does is it reduces the child and dependent care tax credit, temporary assistance for needy families, the state and local tax deductions, and the head of household tax status as well as several other credits for children and families. Now, these are all programs that if you went and looked at them, you would deem them complicated, you would deem them uh, ineffective, uh, and he's taking the money from these sources and he's giving them straight to the people. Now, the Romney plan would be administered through the Social Security Administration. It would require for every child to have a Social Security number. Maybe people don't like that. Uh, But it would lift nearly 3 million children out of poverty. That means that U.S. child poverty would be reduced by roughly one-third and would also be fully paid for because of how he's doing it through 2025. So, you know, that's something that I'm really supportive of. So this thing has gotten even more interesting because now you're talking about the checks. You're seeing Republicans and conservative Democrats discussing limitations based on income. And you have progressive liberals advocating that all people, including those with higher income, should get money. It's like really bizarre, politically speaking. But I I love this. I love this because it's putting people like Joe Manchin Mm -hmm. back in the spotlight it's moving the argument to the center, and I'm landing the plane here. Uh, right. The Dems need Manchin's vote in order to pass this bill, even through reconciliation. And the, the, this latest proposal, however, in Congress came without the lowered eligibility threshold. So right. they're still not listening to the center. So in terms of caving here, I don't know why you're calling it caving. Compromising in order I'm to meet in the middle. I'm not calling it caving yet, by the way. But okay. Continue. continue. Fine, but my saying. point is this. Yeah. Compromising in order to meet in the middle and create intermittent intermittent moderate change in terms of right. le- uh, legislative agenda right. is not a bad thing in my opinion it's it's what has always been best for our country it's what we've said has been best for our country get the relief out there do it fast do it now but in terms of the legislative agenda i don't believe the same thing applies right okay so first off i don't i don't believe that that the democrats caved on the minimum wage thing because first of all i don't like the minimum wage idea i was happy Good. to see that go yeah me too. um right uh, I think they just made everything more structured. But he- here is here is my 
my concern mm-hmm. about this whole thing because you know everything you just said again you have a very idealistic view of politics i, I get i give you that and i think that's great maybe you watched a lot of west wing right <laughs> which you, i know you're kidding you did. me i've never stopped <laughs> right. literally never stopped so so you know and and that's great but uh but i just i think a lot of what you were just talking about is arguments over ideas and by the way mitt romney was the architect essentially of Obamacare? I mean, Romney Care in Massachusetts was very similar yeah, to what, what Obama. Was. So, so and he had to flip and, on and, it and, when he and ran. Repub- yeah, and Republicans hated that. So, yeah. so you know, uh, the the point is, there's lots of different ideas, and and not one is necessarily correct. So, everything you said structurally about policy re- related to this relief package and what would be better or what would be worse mm-hmm. is very much opinion based it has to do with if you're a conservative or if you're a liberal but Absolutely. here is but here is what i am concerned about cuz I, I i think i read a quote on the show a couple weeks ago i think it was also from dan pfeiffer uh that said something to the effect of this unity argument will be continued to be used by Republicans in bad faith. So when Republicans heard Joe Biden talk about unity and reaching across the aisle and all the these sort of cliches throughout his campaign, they immediately started to think, and this is my opinion, you know, how how were they going to define unity? And within a week of the word unity being used, it meant if you don't govern like a Republican, we're going to accuse you of not wanting unity. And this is something that Clay and I have been arguing over the la- uh, this last week with you, dude, because at the end of the day, Joe Biden is a Democrat. He's not a Republican. I want to play this one more, this one other clip. This is Press Secretary Jen Psaki, who I think is doing a great job, uh, giving perhaps the best response she's given in Biden's short term so far. Uh, where she reminds the press corps who asks a silly question about, oh, I thought you wanted unity. You know, we keep getting these questions. She reminds them of the fact that Biden is a Democrat, not a Republican. This is what that sounds like. And given the president's remarks earlier and his change of tone, it does seem that he is now okay if this does happen just with Democratic support, despite those hopes and despite his calls for unity. Well, first of all, the president ran on the on uh, on unifying the country and putting forward ideas that would help address the crises we're facing. He didn't run on a promise to unite the Democratic and Republican Party into one party in Washington. Uh, this package has the vast majority of support from the American public. Um, this is something that people want. They want to see it pass. They want these checks to get into communities. They want this funding to go to schools. They want more money for vaccine distribution. Okay, so this is what I will say. Despite your personal viewpoints in your cons- fiscally conservative brain, <laughs> um, the two big takeaways from that statement from Jen Psaki is that one, polling for this relief package among Americans shows overwhelming support for it, okay? In fact, according to a CBS YouGov poll that came out today, 84% of Americans approve of this relief package. Now, I know you stated on Instagram that that doesn't mean anything to you because sometimes the people are stupid, and and I might agree with you, but we have to remember, and again, this goes back to you being very idealistic about politics. Politics is a people's game, okay? If the people are 84% of Americans are saying they want this relief, that means they're struggling and they want this relief, okay? And 
Biden has to think about that if he wants the Democrats to keep winning, because if he doesn't give them that, it's going to go, it's good, It's just going to be, oh, the Democrats do, don't do anything for the people, right? Now, number two great thing that Jen Psaki said is that Biden ran on uniting the country, not on morphing the Democrats and the Republicans into one party, right? And slowly but surely, your argument, I think, Justin, is moving in the direction of govern like a Republican or the unity shtick is off. That's at least how I take it, right? It's if you don't govern how a Republican would govern, then then your whole unity thing doesn't work. So, okay? so, so you're missing my point. So I'm okay. not saying at all that Joe Biden should legislate as a Republican. Okay. I've never, ever said anything close to that. What okay. I have said is that he needs to work with Republicans on his legislative agenda. Want to know why? Because Tell Congress, me. while the power right now is held by the Democrats, it's, by a, little, it's a literal right. inch. America right. did not overwhelmingly vote for Democrats to run this country. Now, people right. approve of this package because they're getting paid. Of course, they're going to approve of this package and they're going to like it. And I may be idealistic, but my point is there are Republican votes to gain from Joe Biden if the agenda is pushed through the usual channels. There is such thing as acting in bad faith on the Democratic side if the, if the legislative agenda is pushed through back channels and different rules. And, 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 and I, I will... To speak against this, whether it's done by Republicans, and I will speak it whether it's, it does not matter to me, the party that's in power. Washington okay. is supposed to work a certain way, and that's the way that this leg legislative agenda should work. I'm not advocating for Joe Biden to think like a Republican, but I am advocating for him to work with Republicans on his agenda because Republicans take up a decent portion of Congress still. They're not all Democrats in there. And so that's, in my opinion, what he should do, or I believe he's acting in bad faith. Okay, but he, I will say one more thing on this, and this is the most ironic thing to me, and I know you know this is true, and I mentioned this on our Instagram this morning. If Trump had won, the, if he had won this election, the current Biden relief package would have been panned by Trump as not being enough. He would have absolutely come out and said, this is not big enough. He would have said something like, you know, we need to help our citizens because this this country, uh, you know, this virus came from China and people are really hurting out there, blah, blah, blah. And the entire opinion staff at Fox News and otherwise would have declared him a populist hero and said, you know, he's the only one fighting for the American people. You know, they would have pitted him against Mitch McConnell, which they love to do to create the narrative that Trump, you know, will go up against his own party. You know, they love the, the, the media, yeah. the right wing media love that, you know, that he's this ultimate outsider. Right. And he'll he's the only one that will fight for you. Biden puts forth a package that is probably 15 to 20 percent less than what Trump would have wanted. And and now all of a sudden we get the fiscal responsibility arguments. from. Yeah, the but pundits. we're not talking about the media. We're talking about me and my sentiments would be that. the same no matter what. If Trump put mm -hmm. together a big package, I would be saying the same thing that I'm saying now. Guaranteed. Yeah, I, I guess I guess what I love right now is I love the fact that Joe Biden is giving giving the argument from the right sort of a middle finger. And if he happens to listen to this podcast, which I don't think he does, uh, I would I would tell him, I would say, Mr. President, do not cave on this one. This is something that I really don't think he should cave on. He should stick with what they were, what they wanted to do, the amount they wanted. Do not back down because at the end of the day, it's probably what you will be remembered by, right? Now, do I have confidence though? And this is sort of the final summation. Do I have mm -hmm. confidence that he won't cave? Absolutely not. Democrats always cave. They always do. And it's because it's it's one of the things 
I don't think I could say this enough. The Democrats are terrible at politics, okay? And beyond that, they are scared of the Republicans. They always are. So anytime they do have full control or the power to do something, it always gets watered down because the Republicans are better at pressuring them. That's just how this game works, right? And I have little faith that Biden will stick to his guns here. But if he does, I will congratulate him because my personal belief is that this is better for the country to pass a large stimulus bill right now. Anyway, anything else you want to add? Jay? Uh, I mean, you know, one of us is going to be right. Both of us have, right. a, a, have a pretty bad outlook. Either there's a terrible <laughs> crash uh, and depression or inflation happens and there's a terrible crash and depression. So, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. Yeah. Okay. So uh, let's move on to the impeachment trial and we'll keep this quick. It's been going on the last couple of days. Justin, give us a basic update on everything. You got it. So I actually watched both days of the trial in whole so far. My biggest problem with the whole thing is something you and I spoke about earlier, honestly. Uh, why can't Trump's lawyers wear jackets that fit? Why? What, is it a Republican problem? I have jackets that fit me. I'm a Republican. Uh, maybe I'm wrong. I have no yep. idea. Or, or like uh, we, like we were talking about, let me just cut in, like we were talking yeah. about with Jim Jordan. Just put a jacket on all together. What do you think this sure. is? Passover dinner? Like, <laughs> it's not Seder time. <laughs> right, right. You, you, don't, you don't get to just look all casual. You're in Congress. Put a damn jacket on. Yeah, dress up. I know. Uh, in all seriousness, I think this is simply put. The House managers have been organized, succinct, poignant and well-spoken they presented evidence in multiple mediums and it's been very powerful to watch them create this case there's footage uh i hadn't seen before and it's terribly moving you can't deny that at all trump's lawyer's arguments were bloated rambling verbose and wandering they presented no significant or solid evidence and i don't know where they're going with this however i don't believe it makes much difference i don't have much hope that this will end in a conviction uh but i'll let some of the senators speak for us here uh, Senator Ted Cruz was heard saying, I don't think the lawyers did the most effective job when asked about Trump's lawyers and yeah. added that he thought Representative uh, Jamie Raskin on the Democrat side was impressive and a serious lawyer. Uh, Senator Bill Cassidy, who actually flipped his vote from a month ago and voted to proceed with the trial, said, quote, anyone who listened to President Trump's legal team saw they were unfocused. They attempted to avoid the issue and they talked about everything but the issue at hand. And Senator Lisa Murkowski said, I was really stunned at the first attorney he presented for former President Trump. I couldn't figure out where he was going. I don't think he helped with us better understanding where he was coming from on the Constitution. So I think let's talk about uh, this a little bit, but I also mm -hmm. have another report on what's going on in Georgia. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, you know, the first day was a little boring, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, the you sort of hearing both well, sides. Sure. I, Trump's lawyer went I agree. on for five hours and put everybody to sleep. Dude. I got to tell you, I, you know, I work with attorneys all the time. I know yeah. good attorneys and bad attorneys. It's something I've picked up over the years of, of being surrounded by them. And, um, those, both those attorneys were just terrible. Trump's attorneys were just yeah. terrible. The first guy I have no, I couldn't find any, any serious argument. Oh, in I was there. just going to say there was just no argument. Terrible, was right? And apparently Trump was pissed about it, by the way. I don't way. even That's think he recording. said the word right. constitution in the first argument. It was just terrible. And not to mention he, one of the things he started off with was, uh, 
the uh, the Democrats did a great job presenting their yeah. case, which is yeah. like not something you wanted. That's not very Trumpian, that's for sure. Um, then the second guy, like you said, was just verbose, and uh, on top of that, he had to stop to apologize for how many words there were. Yeah, he's like, hey, I mean, it was just it was ludicrous. But today, today, mm-hmm. and we're recording this Wednesday. You guys will be listening to this on Thursday. Um, if you watch today, or if you didn't watch today, I I, I really think you should go back and watch it because. I was unbelievably moved today yeah. and from from a completely nonpartisan way because, you know, I think we've put so much emphasis on the speech on the 6th that led to the insurrection and because every day, as we've talked about a million times, every day in, in Trump-verse was a, a, a hundred days, mm-hmm. we forgot about the two months leading up to the insurrection and the fact that the day the speech he gave right before the insurrection that was the bullet actually coming out of the gun but the two months prior to that he was polishing the gun he was loading the gun he was cocking the gun and he was firing off practice rounds i mean there's there's just no denying that and the democrats did an unbelievably beautiful job at really laying out the entire timeline the whole story and reminding everyone of the fact that, and this is the craziest part, the whole thing, five people died based on a lie that he just made up. And in fact, a lie that he was he was working on, he was developing before the election even took place. Oh, sure. yeah, that was based in no evidence, mm-hmm. nothing. And all of the 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 tweeting that he was doing, all of the it's not just tweets. A lot of people want to dismiss tweets as not being presidential messages it wasn't just tweets in interviews he's talking about how the election is stolen it was stolen it was rigged and he's implicating not just democrats which is obvious he's implicating republicans as well including his own vice president who he says he's disappointed in because he won't go along with this whole spiel now that here so here's the thing Anyone, and I know we have some right wingers who 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 listen to the show. I know we have some Trumpers who listen to the show. I mean, you can't have a name like uh, was it liberal tear drinker yeah. and not be a Trumper. That person's a Trumper for sure. If you can watch what the Democrats put forth in their arguments today and and see the whole timeline and still not think that Trump is at the very least deserving of impeachment if not criminally culpable for this whole thing. I mean, I I just don't know. You you must be so partisan, you cannot see, you cannot get past your partisanship because it's just crazy. Now, we had considered playing some clips from the trial over the last couple of days, but due to time constraints here, we decided against it. It is all available online, however, and if you missed the trial, I really do suggest you watch it, especially Agreed. from today. Again, today is mm-hmm. Wednesday. Uh, I couldn't have been more impressed with the presentation the Dems put, put together, and I have a challenge for you all, okay? If you can watch the presentation from the Democrats and still come up with an excuse for why Trump shouldn't be impeached at the very least we want to hear from you i want to hear i want to hear the excuse for that because it is as black and white as any case i've ever seen and i have worked in the legal industry for the last seven years so um yeah what else jay tell us so tell us about the georgia thing i will so you mentioned criminal charges so what should sure what should serve as an addendum to this report because let's remember this trial is not happening in a court of criminal law 
Now, it's been reported by the New York Times that President Trump is under investigation in Georgia for the phone call made on January 2nd to Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. This phone call and a few others might have broken three state laws. One, criminal solicitation to commit election fraud, which could be a felony or misdemeanor. A related conspiracy charge, which could be a felony or misdemeanor. And the third bars intentional interference with another's performance of election duties and is a misdemeanor. Now, this is reportedly an actual criminal investigation going on, so we will keep you updated as information comes in on this. Uh, it's ongoing and interesting in, in light of the yep. uh, what's happening in Congress right now. And tomorrow, the, uh, the day you guys, a lot of you guys will be listening to the show is Thursday, and it is the Trump's response, Trump team response to what the Democrats put forward uh, today. So we will update you on that next week. Yep. That is it. Let's move on because we have more to get to. Next, we are going to bring back a segment that uh, we haven't brought back for a while, but that we really enjoy. This is Shut Up and Sing. I was told not long ago that I can't talk the way I do. Singers shouldn't share their kind of bears of world abuse. Saying something off the wall just might be in folks out of shape. Hardworking people spend the paychecks to show up and escape. So put a plug in what you think. Man, shut up and sing. Andrea Moore is a writer and comedian. I would venture to say a political comedian, as a great deal of her jokes, at least on Twitter, center around political satire. I recently saw her on Twitter and had to have her on the show because she is just so ridiculously funny. She's also doing her thing with the organization Ground Game LA, working to help the most marginalized communities around Los Angeles. Please welcome Andrea Moore to the show. Andrea, welcome. Thank you. That was the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me. Ever? <laughs> I'm having temporary amnesia, <laughs> but definitely this day, at least. That's okay. a very kind introduction. So tell us, when did you first get into comedy or first know that you wanted to be a comedian or a comedy writer? I started doing stand-up in college, and I would just write one-liners and then perform them in this like very safe black box at a liberal arts college. And then I always knew that I wanted to write for TV because when I was in like middle school and high school, I was very into um, like Parks and Rec and 30 Rock and The Office. And I had that like Thursday schedule and I was like, oh, I want to do this. And so that was kind of always I kind of always knew I was going to at least pursue comedy writing in some capacity. And so now I'm here in L.A. stuck inside. So as Justin mentioned in your glowing intro, you, at least on, on social media, seem to specialize in political satire, which, you know, Justin and I, you know, we're doing a political podcast here. We always sort of make sure that we don't take it too seriously. So I guess the question is, you know, what do you love specifically about political satire? Why is it funny to you? Um, well, I actually hate politics, and I think that's why I tweet about it so much. I just think I have a lot to say and living in LA, it's a very diverse city. And I think, you know, since graduating college, I've just been exposed to so many issues that I think um, could be solved by better politics. And I've been involved in some campaigns, some local grassroots like campaigning. And I think I just have opinions and a lot of the political ones come out online 
And I think that some of my opinions are more to the left of others who are in Hollywood. And so those are more to the left of Hollywood. Wow. Yeah. You must be in the, I mean, in the Pacific Ocean at that point then. (laughs) I live in Los Feliz, but I would consider myself a leftist. And I didn't always have that perspective. It was really only since working in organizing and mutual aid efforts that my politics really swung that way. um, As I started to just sort of see how some of the policies and legislation that Democrats that really run Los Angeles and the state, I think, have really failed to help a lot of people who are struggling, especially right now. Right. Well, you know, the name of this segment is called Shut Up and Sing, which is is sort of signaling to the idea that um, a lot of people who have a public persona, they get pushback for sharing their political views. Now, I went through some of your commentary and I could I couldn't really tell whether, you know, what Uh your political affiliation was until you just told us now that you're on the left. But I guess the question Mm -hmm. is, have you ever encountered any pushback or discrimination on social media to any of your jokes? Yeah, I think all the time. I mean, I think even the most uncontroversial take is going to get so much pushback, perhaps more so on Twitter, because people will just see it becomes a Rorschach. Right. Yeah. Am I they see what they want right to. Test yeah. At that point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, I, I'm a leftist. I'm a Bernie Sanders supporter. And I campaigned pretty heavily for Nithya Raman, who won her city council um, campaign in the district I live in, which is CD4. Right. I mean, that's that's who I am. And I'd say I'm I'm a minority in that way in Hollywood and that I'd say Hollywood is very liberal, but it's often mainstream more yeah. to the right. Yeah. Mainstream yeah. liberal. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I definitely say more more Hillary Clinton than Bernie Sanders. Yes. More Elizabeth Warren right. than, than the, the than budgetary right. chairman yeah. Bernie Sanders. thank you you for using his his real name his hebraic name so yeah so you you say you don't like politics but you're you seem to be pretty involved with politics i mean i'm jewish so i'm drawn to things that frustrate me that makes three of us three of us are jewish here so we all know what you're talking about i mean i get very frustrated by politics but i also feel like we can't just sit back and not have an opinion and and not get involved Absolutely. So one of my favorite tweets that you have, even though people can't see the accompanying photo here, which I would recommend they go to your uh, Twitter and look it up, is the tweet with President Biden and Lady Gaga posing together in the frame with the caption reading, this is what every couple that goes out for indoor dining in Beverly Hills looks like, which is completely accurate. (laughs) Um, Would you mind reading a few of your tweets from Twitter for our listeners? Sure. Um, Here's one that I pulled up from March 2018. Antifa just arrived at Whole Foods. They're spray painting fewer over the less in the 10 items or less sign by the checkout line. People are screaming. (laughs) So good. Let's see. Um, This is one that probably would get me a lot of flack and maybe some of your listeners. Um, You can criticize Kamala's prosecutorial record all you want, but women locking up other women passes the Bechdel test. (laughs) Army Hammer can begin to make amends by eating the rich. (laughs) (laughs) Do do one more. One more of your favorites. Okay. I just saw a poster for an improv show covering up a poster for a missing girl, and I've never been more aware that I live in Los Angeles. (laughs) That's perfect. perfect Excellent. Excellent. Excellent ending to that. So so tell us a little bit uh, on more of a serious note. Tell us a little bit about your uh, what you're doing with uh, Ground Game L.A. 
Um, so Ground Game LA is a grassroots organization. It does a lot of things. Um, they help with the Nithya Raman campaign. They do mutual aid. Um, they have political education. Um, but I would say the thing that I'm most involved in right now is the LA Community Fridges, which started at the beginning of the pandemic. And it's not a part of Ground Game, but a lot of people who are in Ground Game um, help me out uh, with the East Hollywood Fridge. So the the LA Community Fridges started out as a way to try to address um, food insecurity that a lot of Angelinos are experiencing. And they're a, a non-hierarchical group of 14 or 16 fridges just all throughout Los Angeles. They're all public. They're on the sidewalk. And the motto is just take what you need, leave what you don't. And anyone can donate and anyone can grab food. And it's no questions asked. Um, and we really are just, check that out. yeah. Um, if you go to my Instagram, which is a more underscore or less, the link in my bio is to a map of Los Angeles with all of the fridges. And so I've been doing that a lot and going to like grocery stores and restaurants and and cafes and picking up the stuff that they can't sell or want to donate and bringing it to the fridge. And that's been kind of the bright spot of 2020 and so far the bright spot of 2021 as well. That's fantastic. So tell us, do you have anything coming up? I don't know. Is there virtual stand up? And tell us where we can find you on socials. You can find me on socials at a more underscore or less. And I have, I think I might have a dentist appointment coming up. <laughs> but other than that, nothing that I think could help my career, unfortunately. Uh, root canal or routine cleaning? Um, routine cleaning, but I'm feeling pessimistic because I kind of took a break from flossing. Uh, yeah, my wife's dad <laughs> okay. is a dentist. He would be very unhappy with you. Oh, yeah, please. Let's never cross paths. They say flossing is even more important than brushing. Who says that? <laughs> Who's the they in this? I, I don't know. I've read that somewhere. It was probably in a right-wing magazine. <laughs> yeah. It's probably not true. Yeah. I think you saw it on, you saw it on <laughs> OWN, probably. Yes. <laughs> I saw it on Newsmax. It was on Newsmax, yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining thank us. Thank you. Thank you for really being on the show. We're, we're big fans. We'll keep our listeners up to date on your incredibly promising career and your work with Ground Game LA. And we hope we can have you back soon. Oh, that's so sweet. Thank you, Justin and Rob. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Anytime. Thanks again. Sure. Bye. Okay. Uh, moving on. As most of you know, we are in the midst of perhaps one of the greatest culture wars in American history. As the saying goes, politics is downstream from culture. So every now and again, we like to shine a spotlight on the culture in America and discuss how it relates to politics in a broader context. That's why we have our own segment for this kind of thing. It's called Culture Corner. Culture Corner. So every Friday night at my house, uh, we eat dinner and then we have a family movie night. And there are four of them. Yeah, I don't get an invite. Is that, you don't. Well, it's, yeah, it's coronavirus. Come That's on. Fine. Give me a break. Right, yeah. And there, there are four of us in my family. We take turns having pop. And I'm not talking about popcorn. I'm talking about an acronym. Okay. Uh, stands for Power of the Pick, which means if you have pop that night, you get to pick the movie. Hang on. You moved from the podcast. You've moved it into your real life and you're naming segments at home. Naming segments at home. Exactly. So uh, last Friday was my turn to have Power of the Pick. And uh, we've gone through pretty much every kid-friendly movie you can name, like every Disney movie. There's only so much content out there. 
Exactly. We've done every Disney movie, every Pixar. I mean, we've seen them all. And my kids are relatively, Justin knows my kids, they're relatively street smart, especially my daughter. So even though she's only eight, she can probably handle a little more than other eight-year-olds can these days in terms of scary or real-world situations. Mm -hmm. Like, we've watched the entire Indiana Jones trilogy. And some of that, like, Temple of the Doom is scary. Like, when he pulls... Oh, that that terrified me as a child. Yeah, you know, it's funny. She was scared about it while it was happening, but, uh, you know... I th- I think my kids have a pretty good handle on real versus make believe. That's good. So yeah, we've we've watched the entire future uh, Back to the Future trilogy. Nice. Uh, we, you know, some, there's some scary moments in there. Mm-hmm. We've watched the uh, you know all the Karate Kid movies. Nice. I mean, we, so we yeah, so we've, we've sort of moved on to yeah. Every Jewish kid loves the yeah, Karate Kid. I don't know why because <laughs> we can't do karate. I think <laughs> exactly exactly. So um, we have we've sort of moved on to uh, to like preteen PG thirteen movies, if you will. Uh, but because we've watched so many movies, it becomes harder and harder every week to come up with something that we've watched that's appropriate. Sure. You know that, you know something that we haven't watched rather mm-hmm. that's appropriate. So um, I'm scrolling movies and I land on Ladybugs, starring Rodney Dangerfield. I love this movie. Right? I watched it so many right. times growing up. I forgot about there it. There you completely. go. I haven't watched this movie in probably 20 years, yeah, right? But it came out in 1992. So I was 12 years old when okay. it came out. It's almost 30 years ago, right? Yeah. And it was, you know, it was certainly a kid-friendly movie back then. And it's funny. So I decided on Lady Buzz, right? Let's watch this movie. This the is, other you star guys was like in this, a, right? he was in a sitcom or something? The Little Blonde Kid? Well, the little blonde kid is dead. Rest in peace. Um, You're kidding. His name is uh, Jonathan Brandis. He yeah. committed suicide. Oh, yeah, that's a few horrible. years ago. I did yeah. not know that. Uh, a bunch of years ago, but right. yeah. No, um, now that I brought yeah, that down. W- way to up. bring it down. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, now, for all those who haven't seen the movie, let me briefly detail the plot okay so rodney dangerfield plays his usual loser character who gets no respect i get no respect you know (laughs) and he's he's desperately trying to figure out how to marry his girlfriend but he doesn't have the money so he's hoping for a promotion at work that will put more money in his pocket so he can marry his girlfriend yeah capitalism so his his boss is sort of your typical corporate a-hole, if you will. And, uh, you know, the company he heads sponsors a female kid soccer team called the Lady Buzz. Uh, you know, it's it's a soccer team, a kid, you know, a company soccer team, yeah, I guess you I could say. Yeah, soccer and, and, Right, exactly. And, and, and they've been uh, apparently a championship team for many years. So Rodney Dangerfield is in the, off, the boss's office, you know, sort of kissing his butt, uh, asking for a raise, and basically gets sucked into coaching this soccer team, right? And the boss basically tells him that his position at the company will be determined by if he can bring home another championship, because this guy wants, he loves to win, right. right? So there's only two problems, and the two problems are what make the, the movie funny. Yeah. One, Rodney Dangerfield knows nothing about soccer and two it's a rebuilding year for the team the ladybugs and none of the girls that were on the team before are there anymore so no one knows how to play so he realizes dangerfield realizes he's in deep Mm -hmm. of course and he has to figure out a way out of it or else he's going to lose his job and he won't be able to marry his girlfriend right so his girlfriend has a son who's kind of like a juvenile delinquent jock. Yeah. You know, he's played by, again, uh, famous child actor Jonathan Brandis, who died of suicide a bunch of years ago, RIP. So uh, long story short, uh, he convinces the son to dress up like a girl and wear a wig and change his name from Matthew to Martha. It's like a blonde yeah. bob, right? The, the wig, it's like a blonde yeah, bob. Yeah, basically, like it's, a, it's like a blonde yeah, bob. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so he, he he does this so that uh, Matthew, uh, who's going to go by Martha, uh, can, can play on the ladybugs and bring 
bring home a championship winning team. So in other words, it's basically a boy pretends to be a girl movie and it's funny. Yeah. Okay. So the first thing that struck me as I'm watching the movie is that clearly this movie could never and would never be made today. Oh my gosh. In fact, I I think I watched it on Netflix, and I'm actually really surprised it hasn't been pulled. Yeah. Frankly, it's 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 extremely surprising Same, yeah. to me. Just based on the uh, you premise know, alone. Now, right, just the premise alone. Now, a, a lot changes in 30 years. I understand this, but this movie touches on a lot of the things that we sort of carefully talked about a couple weeks ago mm-hmm. on the show regarding transgenderism. If you remember, the very premise of this movie would be incredibly insensitive by today's standards yeah. because there are a, a lot of people and a lot of kids who are suffering from what this movie is making fun of, mm-hmm. essentially. Now, in 1992, I have to assume there were as many kids struggling with this as there is now, whether you believe it's something one is born with or you believe it's an illness. But like like we touched upon a couple of weeks ago, Justin, it wasn't normalized like it is today. Yeah. And I'm not commenting in any way as to whether the normalization of it is good or bad. Mm-hmm. I'm just simply That's noting that in 1992, it wasn't a thing that was normalized. Yeah. And therefore, a movie could make lighthearted fun of the idea that a boy would dress like a girl and play on a girl's soccer team mm-hmm. and it wouldn't be controversial, Correct. right? Like, I, I mean, this movie is made today. It's banned in 20 countries oh, so right if, off the bat. If it comes right? out at all. If it comes out at all, right? And, or it would be like an underground, like straight to DVD kind of thing. Yeah. And, and and I'm not, I don't think I'm being funny or exaggeratory. No, no, no it, not like, There's all. no way this money, there's, this movie is made no way. today. There's no way. No way. But with that said, also in the movie are several extremely racially insensitive moments And I'm going to take you through some of them just to give you some context here. So uh, one of the girls on the soccer team, she's Chinese and her name is Chu, C-H-U. Here's Rodney Dangerfield making a joke about her name. That's our girl, Chu. Chu, 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 Chu. What are you, celebrating or sneezing? So uh, that joke, you know, seems innocuous and cute to some, maybe, but no way that joke gets written into a movie today. No it's way. making fun of someone's culture. Yeah, it's, it's making fun of plain and simple, right? Uh, here's another uh, racially insensitive joke towards Asian Americans. This is when the same character, Chu, turns into a great goalie. I want that goalie tested for steroids. She's a magician. She became the Great War. <laughs> She's a magician. She became the Great Wall. Okay. Really Again, funny. may seem innocuous to, to, to Justin and me, but no way that joke makes it into a movie today. It's culturally inappropriate. Yes. Like you, the the compare, you know, the Great Wall thing. I mean, that, that is again culturally inappropriate. Mm-hmm. Is the only way I could put it. Right. Then uh, there's a fairly offensive gay joke. Now they see a man riding a bicycle down the street with a baby in the seat behind him. Uh, Roddy, you know, you know, when you see like the the little baby at the mm-hmm. at, at the bicycle, Rodney Dangerfield's uh, girlfriend comments on how cute it is, and Rodney responds by saying this. Oh, look at that! Isn't that cute? <laughs> Very cute. All the kid sees is father's behind. Later on, the kid grows up. He'll marry a guy named Ralph, and he'll wonder why. <laughs> oh my gosh. So again, maybe a harmless joke in 1992, but today the ACLU would bankrupt the movie studio for that joke. I mean, there's no doubt about it. That one in particular is about as homophobic as it gets. It's extremely off color. And this is a kid's movie, mind you. This is a kid's movie. Can I ask you a question real quick? Yeah. As you were watching this, uh, Mm -hmm. was your brain just pinging? 
Yeah. I, I kept saying to my wife, I'm like, could you imagine? And, and we were both agreeing. Yeah. Like we were laughing like, oh my God, like our culture has changed so much, but I'll get to that. Yeah. So here, uh, here's another one in the same vein when uh, Dangerfield is trying to explain to his girlfriend why Matthew is dressed up like a girl when the mother uh, finds out accidentally. It sounds like this. What the hell's going on? I'd like to know. <laughs> Take it easy. We, it's nothing. <laughs> When I was a kid, I did the same thing. I used to dress up like a girl, too. You know how kids are. They're always doing crazy things. You know, girls want to be boys. Boys want to be girls. and Some of them are. <laughs> so, again, just to nail this point home, a kid movie that makes fun of the idea that some boys are effeminate, completely off limits today. Just completely off limits. But wait, there's more, okay? More. Of course, yeah, of course, in any late, 80s early 90s movies there must be the token black guy you know he talks with the exaggerated like i'm a guy from the hood accent (laughs) this is blatantly racist and perpetuates an idea that all black people are sort of uneducated and 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 like almost subhuman and Mm -hmm. nobody gave a crap in 1992 here's what that sounded like in case you need a reminder kid you've had enough you're gonna spoil your dinner why don't you go on home no i don't want to go home come on Give me another one. Kid, the way you're drinking, you must have a girl problem. Yeah. Tell me about it. Maybe I can help. How could you help me? With girls, I've been through it all. I've been stood up, shook up, hung up, screwed up, and tied up. What's your problem? Y'all have a fight. By the way, he was drinking milkshakes. I was about there, to ask. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but yeah, again, the token black guy. So now, now that I've proven the, the thesis here. Uh, The political correctness of today has stomped a lot of these things out of our culture over the last 30 years, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, I want to talk a little bit about if anything positive has come out of the sort of global effort to eliminate these kind of things from our culture. Because we hear the right constantly rail against political correctness. But when you break it down, is the fact that we now steer clear of any of this stuff – I just the, you know, any of the stuff I just played you guys is that a negative thing for society mm-hmm. I mean isn't it better for us to be more sensitive and more kind and more accepting of different cultures and things that could potentially offend different cultures well like on the surface I think it's hard to argue that these politically correct developments aren't good for humanity on paper right but when you dig a little deeper have the efforts to eliminate these kind of things from our culture made racism, for instance, disappear? Good question. No, no, definitely has not, not at all. Yeah. We have more racial strife going on in this country today than we have had since the 60s. Yeah. Okay. Has it made kids less prone to bully other kids over their race or their sexual orientation or their physical attributes? Well, that's definitely got well, worse. No, yeah. right, exactly. According to the Megan Meyer Foundation, one in five students report being bullied during the school year, and suicides from bullying, particularly cyberbullying, have increased 40% since 1990. I mean, that's, that's, an okay? epi- that's epidemic levels. Of course it is. So we don't expose kids to anything racially insensitive. We teach them about multiculturalism. We eliminate comedy that pokes fun of alternative lifestyles Mm -hmm. in society. And according to the data, everything has gotten worse, not better. So the big question I'm asking is what has come out of the effort to have us live in this hypersensitive culture where we constantly are waiting on somebody to be offended by something? For instance... 
The show The Simpsons is the longest running cartoon in history and has been one of my favorite shows on television my whole life. Now, The Simpsons are sort of an equal opportunity hater. Yeah. They make fun of everyone. Mm-hmm. That's the shtick of the show. Uh, now, I started watching this when I was eight years old. I still watch it to, to, to this day. You know, I still watch new episodes yeah. today. And the thing that makes The Simpsons so funny is that every character is a stereotypical caricature of that persona in real life. Yeah. So Homer Simpson is the caricature of your idiot deadbeat dad. Lisa Simpson is a budding young PC leftist. Uh, Bart is the caricature of like a juvenile delinquent. And then there are the racial social characters. You have Carl Carlson, who is the token black guy, the token black friend. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to have him. You have Ned Flanders, who's the, the Christian nut, mm-hmm. you know, the nutty Christian guy. And then, of course, you have a Pooh, who is the Indian who works at Quickie Mart, which is a parody of 7-Eleven, yeah. right? And Apu talks with an Indian accent that sounds like this. Thank you. Come again. <laughs> That's it. Very sure. Good. <laughs> and he's your stereotypical Indian guy at 7-Eleven, right? So after like 30 seasons of having Apu as a main character on the show, they discontinued him because there was racial controversy over it, you know, like over the racial insensitivity of parodying an Indian American. In fact, Lisa and Marge Simpson addressed the fact that Apu was no longer on the show on a recent episode. And that sounded like this. Well, what am I supposed to do? It's hard to say. Something that started decades ago and was applauded and inoffensive is now politically incorrect. What can you do? Some things will be dealt with at a later date. If at all. So they completely punted on the question, which got a lot of backlash. Yeah. People wanted them to confront why they, they clearly they wanted to address it without actually addressing mm-hmm. it, which I thought was kind of funny yeah. and, and, and sort of in Simpsons fashion. But there you go. And that leads me to the final clip I want to play here, which is from a recent Chris Rock comedy special on HBO where he talks about the importance of bullies in school. You might be saying, what, what does that have to do with anything? I'm going to tie it all back together. Chris Rock, go. So I'm, I'm at the school, I'm at the school, and the lady comes back out. She goes, I want you to know that the school has absolutely no bullies. We have a no-bully policy. We don't, we, don't, we don't permit bullying. Any bullies will be kicked out of school immediately. And right then, I wanted to take my daughter out to school. <laughs> I was like, what kind of half-assed education is this? I mean, school is supposed to prepare you for life. Life has assholes. And you should learn how to deal with them as soon as possible. Yeah, God forbid you wait till you're 30 to find out people ain't shit. <laughs> That's a lesson you need quick. We need bullies. How the f*** do I have a school with no bullies? Bullies do half the work. That's right. Teachers do one half. Bullies do the whole other half. And that's the half you're going to use as a grown-up. That's right. Who gives a if you can code? If you start crying because your boss didn't say hi. You think kids were nice to Bill Gates in high school? So, and while this is funny, I think what Chris Rock is saying there is 100% on point. And what he's basically saying is that attempting to eliminate things from society 
doesn't actually do what it was intended to do. And uh, all that it does is leave one unprepared when the thing they were trying to eliminate pops up later in life. And now they have no idea how to deal with it. Bullies are always going to exist. Racism is always going to exist. People saying degrading and or culturally insensitive things are always going to exist. Men whistling at women from construction sites is always going to exist. So perhaps rather than attempting to shield us from it, thus creating this hypersensitive environment, maybe we all just need to lighten the hell up, deal with the fact that these things will always exist in our society and bring back the elements of these things that were humorous, that we could laugh about and that we could make fun of and just laugh rather than be offended. So this again is what I think it means to be a liberal against leftism. A liberal doesn't think it's racist or culturally insensitive to occasionally laugh at a joke and watching something as silly as the movie Ladybugs kind of sort of made me realize this. Yes, some of it is inappropriate, but it's funny and to Two things can be true at once. True thing number one, politically incorrect things are bound to offend somebody somewhere in our society. True thing number two, it's sometimes kind of funny. And that's the end of Culture Corner. All right, Rob, I got to tell you, we've done many a Culture Corners uh, now. It's been quite a few. And this was by far your best work. This is fantastic. Thank you. Really, really interesting. And I'm going to watch that movie tonight. And, uh, and have a giggle, if you will. Excellent. Excellent. All right, guys. Uh, final section of the episode. We are going to continue on with what we started last week. This is the topic of the day. It's the topic of the day. Topic of the day. It's the topic of the day. Topic of the day. Okay. Part two of our discussion on the decriminalization slash, slash legalization of drugs. Uh, We touched a a little last week on the war on drugs, and both Clay and I agreed that it has been a horrific and historic government failure, but I thought it would be beneficial for us to lay a little more uh, foundation here before we continue our discussion from last week. Luckily for you guys, I brought my good buddy Justin along with me to give us a buzz history specifically about the war on drugs, how it started, and what the verdict the final verdict should be Justin, give me a baker's dozen of some of that buzzing. Okay, last time. This is drugs. This is your brain on drugs. Any questions? Welcome to Buzzed History The War on Drugs. The War on Drugs is a government initiative that is still active today. This initiative aims to stop illegal drug use, distribution, and trade utilizing different methodologies, including increased prison sentences for drug dealers and users. The recreational and medicinal usage of drugs in America is synonymous with its founding. In the 1890s, the famous Sears and Roebuck catalog included an offer for a syringe and a small amount of cocaine for $1.50. In some states, laws to ban or regulate drugs were passed in the 1800s, and the first congressional act to levy taxes on morphine and opium took place in 1890. The Smoking Opium Exclusion Act of 1909 banned the possession, importation, and use of opium for smoking, but did not outlaw the drug for medicinal purposes. This was the very first federal law banning the non-medicinal use of a substance, except, of course, for alcohol, which had been banned in various counties and states previously. 
Congress passed the Harrison Act in 1914, regulating and taxing the production, importation, and distribution of opiates and cocaine. Prohibition quickly followed, as we learned in last week's Buzz History. In 1937, the Marijuana Tax Act was passed. This was a federal law placing a tax on the sale of cannabis, hemp, or marijuana. While this law didn't criminalize the possession or use of the drug, it included significant penalties if these taxes were ignored, including a fine of anywhere up to $2,000 and five years in prison. This brings us to the beginning of America's war on drugs and President Richard M. Nixon. In 1970, President Nixon signed the Controlled Substances Act, or CSA, into law in 1970, saying in an address to Congress, quote, "If we cannot destroy the drug menace in America, then it will surely, in time, destroy us." I am not prepared to accept this alternative. The CSA called for the regulation of certain drugs and substances. It outlined five schedules, as they are called, used to classify drugs based on their medicinal application and potential for abuse. Schedule one drugs are considered the most dangerous, with high addiction risk and little evidence of medical benefit. This list contains marijuana, yes, still, LSD, heroin, MDMA, mushrooms, mescaline, and bath salts. Remember that guy. The list concludes with Schedule Five, involving substances with the least addiction risk, such as cough medications with small amounts of codeine. In June of 1971, President Nixon officially declared a war on drugs, stating in his declaration that drug abuse was public enemy number one. As part of the War on Drugs initiative, the president increased federal funding for drug control agencies and proposed strict measures, such as mandatory prison sentencing for drug crimes. He also announced the creation of the Special Action Office for Drug Abuse Prevention, headed by Dr. Jerome Jaffe. President Nixon went further in 1973 when he created the Drug Enforcement Administration, or DEA. At the inception of the agency, the DEA was given 1,470 special agents and a budget of less than 75 million dollars. Today, the agency has nearly 5,000 agents and an operating budget of 2.3 billion. There was a ceasefire in the war on drugs in the mid-1970s, and in that time, 11 states decriminalized marijuana possession. In 1977, President Jimmy Carter ran and won on a campaign promising to decriminalize marijuana. And during his first year in office, the Senate Judiciary Committee voted to decriminalize up to one ounce of marijuana. Enter the 1980s and President Ronald Reagan. Reagan's administration saw the passing of severe penalties for drug-related crimes in Congress and state legislatures, which led to a massive increase in incarcerations for nonviolent drug crimes. In 1984, as part of his expanded and reinforced war on drugs policies, President Reagan enlisted his wife Nancy Reagan to launch the Just Say No campaign, intended to highlight the dangers of drug use. In 1986, Congress passed the Anti-Drug Abuse Act, establishing mandatory minimums for certain drug offenses. This law had massive racial ramifications due to the allocation of longer prison sentences for offenses involving the same amount of crack cocaine during a time in which the crack epidemic was sweeping through the black community as powder cocaine. It's the '80s, people. Watch some '80s Wall Street movies if you don't know what I'm talking about. For example, if you were caught with five grams of crack, you would get an automatic five-year sentence. It would take 500 grams of powder cocaine to get you the same exact sentence. Recent decades has seen the war on drugs wane. Between 2009 and 2013, about 40 states took steps to soften their drug laws, lowering penalties and shortening mandatory minimum sentences. In 2010. Congress passed the Fair Sentencing Act, which reduces the discrepancy between crack and powder cocaine offenses from an 100 to 1 ratio to 18 to 1. Over the past four decades, we can track some stats to show us the wins and losses in the war on drugs. Although the U.S. has committed more than one trillion dollars as of 2012 at a rate of 51 billion dollars each year to the war on drugs, drug use remains a very serious problem in our country, despite the drug war making these substances less accessible. 
Additionally, the lack of attention or allocation of resources, given to the strain this war would place on the justice system, has led to some serious negative consequences. Although it's interesting that about 54% of people in state prisons, which houses more than 86% of the U.S. prison population, were violent offenders, and only 16% were drug offenders, according to the Bureau of Justice in 2012. That isn't to say that mass imprisonment due to mandatory minimums hasn't led to a lot of overcrowding in U.S. prisons. Overall, the prices of most drugs have plummeted. Between 1981 and 2007, the median bulk price of heroin is down 93%, and the median bulk price of powder cocaine is down by about 87%. Between 1986 and 2007, the median bulk price of crack cocaine fell by around 54%. Meanwhile, the prices of meth and marijuana have remained largely stable since the 1980s. The U.S. has spent $7.6 billion between 2002 and 2014 to crack down on opium in Afghanistan, where a bulk of the world's supply for heroin comes from. Despite those efforts, Afghanistan's opium poppy crop cultivation reached record levels in 2013. Despite some of these stats leaning heavily towards the idea that the war on drugs has been fought and lost, a 2014 study by John Calkins, a drug policy expert at Carnegie Mellon University, suggests that prohibition does make drugs less accessible than if they were legal. It also multiplies the price of hard drugs like cocaine by as much as 10 times. So the drug war is likely stopping some drug use. Calkins estimates that legalization could lead hard drug use to triple. There's also evidence that the drug war is too harsh in its distribution of punishment. The 2014 study from Peter Reuter at the University of Maryland and Harold Polak at the University of Chicago found that there is no good evidence that tougher punishments or harsher supply elimination efforts do a better job of lessening access to drugs and substance abuse than lighter penalties. Instead, the reduction in drug accessibility appears to be from the result the simple fact that drugs are illegal, which by itself makes drugs more expensive and less accessible by reducing or eliminating avenues towards mass production and distribution. In closing, here are some further stats to consider when we discuss or reference the war on drugs. Every 25 seconds, someone in America is arrested for drug possession. The number of Americans arrested for possession has tripled since 1980, reaching 1.3 million arrests per year in 2015, six times the number of arrests for actual drug sales. In 2015, the federal government spent an estimated $9.2 million every day to incarcerate people charged with drug-related offenses, which is more than $3.3 billion annually. However, it is important to include in the stat that 80 to 85 percent of those incarcerated and need treatment do not receive it. In 2016, 11.8 million Americans misused prescription opioids or heroin. Every 16 minutes, a person in America dies from an opioid overdose. That same year, 2016, 42,249 Americans died from opioid overdoses, more than the number of people killed in motor vehicle accidents. This has, of course, increased generally since. This has been another Buzzed History. Buzz History. Great Buzz History, Justin. Thank you for that. So let's get into the discussion here. And uh, let's first talk again. We touched on this a little last week, that cartels and uh, the criminal element that must exist in order for the drug trade to exist. Clay, uh, why don't you, uh, you tee us up there? It's interesting for this discussion because while cartels may not have come into existence if drugs had always been legal, this goes back to last week when I accused you of time machine politics. Right. It's tough to just say, well, now if we made everything legal, then the cartels wouldn't exist. But that's really not true. And so we'd love to be able to maybe go back and make different uh, different decisions, but we can't quite do that. And and even just focusing on our 
her current home state of California. This provides use, useful examples of what can happen when you do legalize something and, and how much you really get it, get rid of the cartel and, and right. the illegal market. Mm-hmm. So California is perhaps among all of the states the most uh, heavily regulated state with high taxes on all kinds of things. And this, of course, extends to the now legalized marijuana industry. Right. So mm-hmm. you've got taxes at the state level, the county level, and the local level. And actually, plenty of places in California because of a moral imperative or some other thing, have actually said, within their own city limits, we have our own power, we're not going to let marijuana dispensaries open. I was very surprised by this. Three-fourths of the cities in California have taken such a stance. There's a lot of flipping cities in California. So that's a lot of places where, in a place where it's legalized, you still can't get it. Um, Yeah, any of the big six, though? I know California has six major metropolitan areas. I don't know to a certainty, but I have to doubt. Like that, yeah. I, I doubt that that's three quarters by population, right? Okay. Uh, for example, as opposed to yeah. just sheer number. But right. anyway, the, the result has been that the recreational market has fallen dramatically short of expectations, and this even peeled off people from the long existing medicinal market. The medicinal market in California, I think, has been around since like the late seventies or something. And in the first year that it was uh, that marijuana was fully legalized and taxes went up and all of that, revenues just in the medicinal market, dropped by 18%. So even now, we're four, actually, I guess five, it was 2016, we're five years into the marijuana legalization regime in California, and the illegal market is still estimated to be 75%. 75% right, of all That's marijuana crazy. sales in California. Yeah. That is so, crazy. And, and only, yeah. only just finally in 2020, I don't, I don't have the actual numbers because we're early in the year and accountants are still doing their thing, but only just finally in 2020 we're... Uh, recreational alone revenue is expected to top $1 billion. Yeah. And the, the, uh, the bill, the, the, the prop passed on the notion of we're going to make a billion dollars in the first year. This thing is a cash mm-hmm. cow. Yeah. And so this has a couple of implica- implications, some of which we'll get into as, as the discussion continues. But to the point of cartel behavior, there are plenty of illegal operatives still moving in the marijuana industry in California. And if you believe, and that's if you believe, that um, the negative externalities that come from drug use come from that illegal activity, even in a legalization regime, you're you're not stamping it out. Right. Well, so th- this is a, would be a good opportunity for me to tie in the prostitution thing that I wanted to tie in, because it was all based on this article that I read years ago um, that I'm trying to find for you guys. And, and I will. I will. I will eventually locate this article that was titled something along the lines of um, uh, there are no pimps in Nevada. It was something like that. And the article made it made the case that. Um, in Nevada, which is the only country, uh, the only state in the entire country that uh, has legalized prostitution, there is no pimp trade there. It, there is all of the you know women or men for that matter uh, working in the prostitution racket are on their own, and uh, it sort of reminded me like there's a scene in the beginning of Goodfellas when uh, Ray Liotta is explaining what the mob does. And I, I'm paraphrasing here, but he says something to the extent of like the FBI never could understand that what the mob does, like what the organization is for is for offering protection for people who can't go to the cops. Like, I think he says something like they're just the police department for wise guys. That's it. Right. And it, it, the way that relates to the prostitution thing is that when you're involved in something that's criminal, you need you can't go to the cops if if 
something criminal happens to you. So the idea behind the mob or behind the pimp industry, for instance, is that if a prostitute gets ripped off or gets um, uh, assaulted, that's what the pimp is there for, to, uh, to give her protection because she can't go to the cops. And what this article was saying was that in Nevada, the prostitutes essentially work on their own. They don't need the the uh, they don't need the protection of the pimp because if anything bad happens to them, they can legally go to to police. And that's really what sparked my thinking about how that relates to the drug market and how we have this criminal element that is attached to drugs because it is criminal. And if it wasn't, if it was decriminalized. Would that market just go away like as evidenced by the the pimp trade in Nevada? That's the question. Well, I think I think what you mean to say is, is it if it was legalized, would it go away? Mm-hmm. Yes. yes. To drugs. Yes. That's well, very le- important. Yes, I, I, I guess I guess you could say that legalized. Correct. Yeah. yeah but I think it create. I mean, I, I get what you're saying, but I think it, you're creating a very simplistic, narrow view, because okay. if you look outside of the one aspect that you're talking about. There are an extraordinary number of externalities caused by legalization or decriminalization of prostitution. There, there are plenty of stats that prove uh, that the regulation of prostitution creates a facade of legitimacy that actually hides further sexual exploitation and that brothels can operate as they do in Nevada as legalized outlets for victims of sex trafficking. And these, are, these stats can be proven just about everywhere where this is yeah. happening. You know, by the uh, way, the founders love them some brothels. I mean, you can't argue that, right? No, they did, but they we're talking this is yeah. a very different time, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, you know, sex trafficking. I think, is most exp- prevalent... I think we've accepted the founders as imperfect heroes, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. fair. Uh, is At that least in the nineteen project? Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say, yeah. Sorry, sorry, guys, over at the New York Times, but yeah. exactly here we've accepted them as imperfect heroes, right? So, yeah, I mean, there is book after book, and and st- and 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 qualitative analysis after qualitative analysis that prove that that sex trafficking is most prevalent in countries where prostitution is legalized and so these externalities aren't taken into consideration when you're talking about what we're talking about it's just narrow right but and i understand that but like for instance when i was in italy uh for my honeymoon uh there is a section of the city i forget what it's called where prostitution is completely legal and we drove through it and it was crazy like people are just naked it's not like it's not like everyone's seen a hooker in la like on van nuys boulevard or something right in in rome this was in rome um it was like the people were completely, the women were just naked, just running around the street. It was in this one confined area. And I remember the cab driver saying like, yeah, it's just this area and then it goes away. And, I, you know, that's why I think I brought this up last week. You could attach regulation to the legalization. Um, so, so because I don't want to be, I don't want to have hookers on my block with my kids running around. But if it were parts of the city where it was legal, just like, you know, you don't take your kids to Las Vegas and bring them to the areas where, you're, where, where you can find hookers. You just don't do that, right? That comes back to the sort of libertarian argument of parenting, good parenting. So I wouldn't take my kids to downtown LA where the hookers are. Right. And I understand that doesn't that doesn't solve all the externalities you're talking yeah, yeah, about yeah. in terms of, of the trafficking and all of that. Yeah. But well, uh, let, let me know. give you an example. It speaks yeah. to what you're saying. Um, right. And we're, t- you know, Amsterdam, red light district. It's in one area. Mm-hmm. Right. It's a very famous right. area, obviously. So yeah. I, I, there's a study uh, that Amsterdam based child right organization did. And they estimate that the number of children in prostitution has increased by more than 300 percent between 96 and, and 2001. 
going from 4,000 children to 15,000 children in, in 2001 in Amsterdam, yeah. in the red light district. So I right. don't know that it changes much. It, it doesn't change anything for the industry or the sex trafficking problem. It changes right. something for you and your children that you don't have to see people on the street corner, but it still creates yeah. externalities in the community that are very bad for the community. Yeah, I, I don't know how Amsterdam's government works, um, but I would say, and here's the thing, if you involve government at a certain level in these kind of things, wouldn't they have more of the ability, the government, to crack down on those things that are illegal within the legal industry? Like, for instance, if if prostitution were illegal, they could take a, take a more prominent role in making sure that the illegal prostitution, which is anything that's underage or sex trafficking or any of that, were stomped out. So in other words, by making something legal, you do inherently involve the the gun of the government, if you will, to be involved, which inherently changes the way the industry would operate, I would think at least. Yeah, I would say two things to that. Number one, uh, making something legal doesn't make uh, the criminal element dumber. Yeah. So, you know, they'll, they'll maybe even find better ways to do this and more evolved ways to do this. And number two... Uh, the government, it, because of that, the government's always going to have a problem, even even if they have a larger gun in the fight. It's going to be a problem because these people are in the shadows. They have a massive amounts of money, and it's just it's if it was if it wasn't difficult to, uh, if it wasn't difficult for them to do, they'd be doing it now. Right. These people. Yeah, I think you're you're balancing there the idea of you're bringing something more out into the open by legalizing slash decriminalizing it depending on what we're talking about and by bringing it out into the open you have certain regulations that you have to follow you have people there to inspect more often right you have resources that are devoted to that government resources however by bringing it out into the open you also therefore expose the average person to the existence of that trade and so to justin's point if something is legal, I would presume there is just more of a common knowledge that this thing exists, and thus it would be easier for a 13 or 14-year-old to become be involved, involved right. for example. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know. That's all theoretical. Right. Uh, I, don't, I, I can't give you stats, yeah, stats to, to, stats, to support they, either side of that. You know? They back you up mm. in terms of the fact that where this is legalized, uh, even when, it, when it's correlated to a certain area, that there are, you know, children sex trafficking issues it should be noted that another uh libertarian party american libertarian party platform position is the legalization of prostitution um so along with you guys not having to wear seatbelts right Mm. (laughs) well in this this discussion i think it it transitions well into what i think is kind of the the big problem when we start talking about mass legalization or even decriminalization of of various drugs because um, as I said before on the last episode, like I'm not going to sit here and argue for the war on drugs. I'm not going to argue for mass incarceration and disenfranchisement of voters, particularly if you're black or brown. Like that, that's not what I'm here to do at all. Uh, however, the the train is gaining steam with Oregon doing what they did, and I just think that we can learn lessons from foreign countries and just human behavior in general that that tell me that we need a better plan if we're going to go with this mass decriminalization or legalization change in drug policy. Uh, And we were just talking about how 
sure, if the prostitution is, is legal in parts of the Netherlands or in Vegas, then presumably there's more of a spotlight on that. And so we can stop all of these uh, insidious and illegal things from happening. Well, we can only do that if we have the resources devoted to those enforcement regimes. Otherwise, we're just bringing something out into the light and allowing the problem to get worse. Yeah, in, right, the case of, in the case of prostitution, that, right. that negative externality is perhaps the minors getting involved before no, they really are point. of an age to, to do such things. Yeah, and it directly um, correlates to more government involvement, which correlates to more government programs, which correlates to higher taxes. So I don't know if you want to walk us through some of that, but... Well, sure. I'd love to. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, I think... Um, when you apply that to the drug trade, that's exactly right. We have a number of ways that we can try to limit the effects of externalities. The war on drugs has effectively been a pronouncement that we're going to criminalize these people. We're going to ruin their lives by putting them in prison. And no one is going to tell you that that was a net win for society. Right. And that's what, what I've, I think what I've really landed on in this conversation is that decriminalization to me uh, would also have to be combined. Uh, that That is a policy I support, and it would have to be combined with treatment uh, in terms of the drug, uh, the drug conversation, because I don't think putting drug users in prison has, has done anything to help the situation, as evidenced by some of the stats in, in Justin's Buzz history. Uh, I don't think you can criminalize, you, or, or you can punish people with... Uh, or, or, uh, let me say this again. I don't think that threatening the threat of of jail time gets people to stop doing drugs. Treatment gets people to stop doing drugs, and that's sort of what they've done in Portugal, right? So, yeah, so certainly between the two, yeah, <laughs> yeah or, or, or it might be a combination. I mean, you know, it's yeah. interesting to me that, that that I said, you know, eighty to eighty five percent of people that needed treatment in prisons haven't gotten it. We don't know that it's some combination because we it, they they're not getting the treatment that they need. Yeah, but I would say I would uh, in a perfect world for me, I wouldn't want these people to be punished at all. Um I I think that if we treated drug users with a little more dignity and uh offered them an opportunity to get treatment where they could get the help that they need uh, and looked at it as a disease rather than a um, voluntary criminal act. I think we'd, we we not only would we would we be a more compassionate country, but we would solve the very big problem. The reason we named this uh, this episode uh, how to how to destroy the uh, nuclear family is that we have uh, an entire community in this country that has been deprived of of the nuclear family because of government policy, a lot of which relates to the war on drugs that has incarcerated, um, you know, a lot of people and a lot of men, especially in the minority community and left a lot of kids without fathers. Uh, wouldn't it be better to treat those people, get them, help them get jobs, get them back on their feet rather than punishing them for a simple possession of, of, of drugs? I agree with that with, 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 uh, distinctions because you said offer them treatment. Now, a lot of people, they're not going to go into treatment if you simply offer it to them because they're addicted and they don't want to get off drugs. An individual yeah. who enters a residential drug treatment program or is admitted to a hospital for drug uh, treatment, you know, they're, it's important to keep in mind, they're taken out of the labor force as well. So it, be, it creates another externality. So, you know, we have to no, but make sure that these people... it's a question of whether it's better time, better spent. No, for sure. But we, my point is we have to make sure these people 
go to these programs, finish these programs, and come out because you know there's also a high rate of of uh, there's a high rate of relapsing that happens when they leave treatment as well. So we don't want to just put them out, you know, back into the world and have them mm-hmm. repeat the same, you know, thing. Yeah. The the, well, the issue is though, and and this isn't an easy issue, mind you, is that if you if you compel people to treatments, mm-hmm. any yeah. Addiction therapists in the world would tell you you've already doesn't, it up. It doesn't stick. Absolutely. <laughs> like you've, no, you've already sure. it up. You this know, is the and, problem. And, you know, like in, in Portugal, and it's, it's important to note here that Portugal is not perfect, but they seem to have done a better job in terms of their numbers over their 20-year experiment than a lot of other places have. Like Paraguay is one place where the judge actually has the power to mandate treatment. And yeah. he has the power to mandate treatment for the amount of time that he or she thinks is the appropriate time. And Paraguay's numbers are are kind of wonky because that country has a lot of corruption at the top anyway, and they grow a lot of drugs, and it, it, it's not it's not a good case study. But Portugal, they have a lot of different civil things that they can do to you that will make life difficult if you don't go to treatment. But they cannot force you to treatment. You can pay fines, you can be banned from certain organizations, you can lose your license if you're a teacher or something. Like lots of things that can happen, but. I, th- I think any anybody, uh, if you were to get a think tank together and say, how do we solve this problem? They would say mandating treatment is not the way to go. And that that doesn't sound much different from you go to prison and we force you to treatment once you're there. And even then, it seems like we're paying twice. We're, pay- we're, we're, paying, for the, we're paying for the prison costs and we're paying for the therapy costs. Um, but if you, if you look around the world at sort of what has been the research we can draw and you you said something in your buzz history which was excellent about the culkin study and i haven't read the culkin study i don't know what it is so i can't attack his method or he or she's methods i can't attack their sample size blah blah blah. all i can say is that the research from that study is vastly outweighed by many other studies uh who who would say that the um the enforcement regimes and the punishment regimes have very little effect on drug use and even decriminalization has very little effect on drug use it doesn't take it up it doesn't take it down the idea is are we taking that money uh and putting people in prison and disenfranchising voters and wasting money and potential and breaking up families etc or are we at least trying to make them better and get them back into the system and that sort of question of is the money better well spent other ways um, that I think is the really sticky wicket that we should talk about here. Yeah, and let's do it. How, it, how it's just not that easy. So right. l- l- let's let's talk for for just a minute about something that everyone knows about in the news right now, um, and that's the opioid crisis, and in particular Purdue Pharmaceuticals, who created OxyContin, and in the view of some, is the primary uh, actor responsible for the opioid crisis. So. The Purdue Pharmaceutical Company is in bankruptcy currently, and this is all public. Everything I'm going to say here, y'all can go and read about if you if you have a Pacer.gov account. Um, in that case, there have been, I think, something like $12 trillion in claims against the Purdue estate for all the damage they've caused. Not all of that is for addiction treatment. That's for any right. number of things. But it's a lot of money that have been put at them in terms of the harm that has been caused by this legal drug that has then led to uh, lots of use of illegal drugs because, as I think everyone here listening knows, Oxycontin has some of the same chemical properties as heroin. Um, But just to take one example in terms of comparing costs. So 
The war on drugs, admittedly a disaster. $47 billion per year by some estimates. Um, I was trying to find a more current number for this, and I actually had trouble. But uh, an Atlantic piece from 2012 estimated that since 1970, the war on drugs cost something like $1.5 trillion. And that includes increased prison costs, at least to the best you can, because it's, it's kind, it's kind of a, a, a tricky thing to quantify. Um, so some of the many claimants in the Purdue case are the 50 U.S. states and D.C. and territories and tribal lands, okay? What happens in a bankruptcy case, sorry to go lawyer on you for a moment, but what happened to go in a bankruptcy case is that claimants to the estate who have a claim against the estate put in a proof of claim. And the proof of claim is for a certain amount for how much they feel they were damaged. And what the 50 states did here was interesting in saying, we're not worried about the damages that we have in the past. We're just talking about what are the costs that we think we need to abate the crisis, to fix the crisis, essentially. Um, And they put in a proof of claim. Again, this is all public. They put in a proof of claim in which they tried to estimate what will it take to stop the addiction problem we have through 2040, which is 20 years from now. Do you want to know what that number was? (laughs) Tell me. $2.156 trillion. So, important caveat, that is a number that was put in by a series of experts looking forward, as opposed to the $1.5 trillion that we know is money spent. And this isn't to say that the experts aren't credible, or that what they put in weren't colorable, or that even that they've inflated the numbers. For all I know, it is, it is completely legitimate, and all of the T's are crossed, but it's still theoretical. So we have to take that with a grain of salt, perhaps. Yeah. But I think this just sort of illustrates 50 years of the war on drugs was not money well spent. No. Just to fix the problem caused by a single legal drug and the addiction problems that it's caused, experts estimate over $2 trillion over the next 20 years. So I'm all for the idea of putting that money towards something else, but how are we going to make that happen? And Portugal teaches this lesson, too. All of the experts, as we said last week, and the people who form the plan will say, we haven't solved our problems and taken down HIV and taken down drug-related crimes and all this stuff just because of decriminalization. We've done it because we have a massive social safety net, and we've put money towards addiction treatment. And so it becomes a question, are we as Americans prepared to do that? And I'm not arguing whether we should or should not. I'm just asking the question, are we prepared to do that? Because we need to if we're going to decriminalize. All righty, guys, we will be back next week. We're going to cut this right here. We're going to come back next week for part three of this three-part series of this conversation. This is the first time we've done something like this, and I think it's an interesting conversation. We have more things to talk about next week, so uh, we will see you then. Until then, Jay, you have anything else to say? Don't do anything crazy, America, like spend a lot of money on a COVID relief bill. (laughs) Or do. And we'll leave it right there. Good night, guys. Good night. Have a good week. This has been another episode of Down the Middle, the fastest growing moderate political podcast in the nation. Go to downthemiddlepod.com to find out more info and contact us. If you send us questions, we'll answer them on air. Follow us on social media at Down the Middle Podcast on Instagram, at Down the Middle PC on Twitter, and at Down the Middle Pod on Facebook. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you are listening. Five stars, people. Five stars. All right.
Good night for now. <laughs>